This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here, along with Jeff and Terry. The gang is gathered. We're all here for you. Why? We're, I can't. I can't tell if you were doing... Ethel Merman I'm just or doing Howard me. Cassell? Can I not just be me in the morning? No, you cannot. So, that's, that's kind of the question. So bright just, and chipper. Uh, we got a lot to cover today. Holy cow. Is the East Coast getting bombed or what? A frozen hurricane mm. has hit the East Coast pretty much. Zero degree, zero visibility. You're trying to fly? You're not. You're not flying. You're not tonight. flying at all. If you're we, trying to drive some places, you're not driving. We thought we had it bad with the inversion. Yeah. No. Yeah. Here we're like, oh, we can see our air. I can't <laughs> hardly breathe. But there they can't see. They hmm. can't. Uh, 2,800 flights have been disrupted. Unbelievable. S- schools are closed, which means kids are on the loose. Do you remember having a snow day? Snow oh, yeah. days are the greatest gift from heaven ever as a child. M- my elementary school was Sorry. uphill. You know, the whole uphill both ways yeah. thing? Mine yeah, was yeah. uphill one way. But uh, <laughs> it was kind of out by itself, so there was no homes built up yet around yeah. it when it was built. Didn't it have huge fences and walls around it to keep all you kids in? Well, there was that, too. Um, and then they put up snow fences, but they didn't quite work, so there was a lot of drifting snow. <laughs> and there was one year, I, I had a, a school bus that would drive us to school, and it couldn't get up the hill, so it just let us out at the bottom of the hill. And it was probably about quarter mile or something good I don't luck know. kids so we're just trudging up this hill in the wind they're just like we're fighting up the hill it's great oh. the audience members were booing by Why? the way because they're all from southern california so they never had a snow day like, they, What's that? you do not know what well you had fire days right <laughs> and yeah and bad traffic days they don't cancel school for those. You've never experienced the joy of waking up and seeing like two feet of snow on your front lawn and thinking, oh, no. and then then you find out. Well, and then you turn on the TV. You got to watch the news. Yeah, see if your school's canceled for the day. Oh, it's it the wasn't until thing. when I, it does. Yay! <laughs> it wasn't until I lived in Seattle and the first year I was married, we got pummeled with like the worst snowstorm in, in Seattle's history. Really? And they canceled everything. Because they don't know how to handle no. snow in Seattle. Yeah, right. you can't handle snow. And there's super equipment. steep hills there. We're mm-hmm. canceling life. It is. But then the problem is all the parents still have to go to work, but now they've got these kids that yeah. just want to stay home. Ah, oh, those are the days. In some places, they're just telling everyone, just stay home today. Isn't that people. why they created Netflix? Yes. I think that is the reason. Oh, yeah. It was probably some kids. Except that for the freezing it. rain on the trees hitting the power lines and then, then hmm, you're not, no Netflix. Then you're Netflix. Yeah, no, details. Um, Twelve people apparently have died because of the bomb cyclone. Right. Ooh. Twelve people. I mean, we covered fires mm. that destroyed hundreds of millions of dollars worth of property and, and not as many deaths as happened overnight That's with crazy. one storm. This is crazy. Well, we're hoping and praying for you. I mean, it's again, it's, there's going to be kids that think this is the greatest thing in the world, but uh, there's still parents that can't move, and and it's scary. And it doesn't look like it's going to let up soon. So, just know it'll roll through the weekend right up the East Coast. So, ah, oh. wow. And here we sit uh, in the Rocky Mountains where we're supposed to have snow. No snow. No snow. Snowless. You're. They're taking our snow. Hmm. 
The polar vortex is. If it's yeah, it's going to kill us, though, I, I guess I would prefer it stayed away. Yeah. The sad thing is we probably could at least move the snow better here because we have equipment. Yeah, there's a fleet of snow plows just, just sitting, sitting in there. parking lots, uh-huh. just waiting. Just full of uh There's a shopping center, a shopping center near my home. They have two... Like front loaders, the big bulldozers. Yeah, just waiting. They're just waiting. They, they they reserve them for the winter time to make sure parking lots are open ah. and they're just sitting there. That poor snow plowman. <laughs> I know. Lonely. I'm so lonely. That's it. Okay. That's enough of that. Yeah. I uh, wanted to make you feel just a little more awkward. You could have let me go on just a little longer. Yeah, I, but I was thinking about the people. Oh, I guess that's true. People first. Always think about the people first. Uh, New England's going to get 6 to 12 inches, apparently. Boy, I can't get over it. uh, Charleston, South Carolina got snow. Blasted. There's palm trees and snow. Cool. Just doesn't feel right. (laughs) It doesn't feel right. So that's going on, plus another uh, cold blowing storm out of Washington, D.C. Yeah. That has nothing to do with... (laughs) The real storm. It's uh, President Trump's battle with Bannon. They're at odds with each other now. They're not even uh, – Trump has pretty much disavowed Bannon as a human being. Yes. Yeah, so there's this book. We talked yeah. about it a little bit yeah. yesterday. There's some quotes in it. He's going to crack Don Jr. like an egg. The, the meeting of the Trump people with the Russian lawyers and Trump Tower was treasonous, stuff like that. Yeah. Um, Melania, the new information, Melania Trump was crying on election night, not because she was happy, but because, oh my gosh, uh, I was told you weren't going to win. And I thought you were going to lose this. So, we got a bunch of real dummies. That was the thing is it forced her office to put out a, uh, a statement yesterday. Oh, good. What did she say? And the first ladies, they don't put out statements like this. They let the, the main office yeah. of, you know, communications take care of that. But her office, the first line was, this book is clearly going to be sold on the bargain fiction section. Yeah. And then it went wow. From there. Yeah. Although, so, isn't it currently on Amazon's best-selling yeah, list? Yeah, it went from yeah. like 51,000 on the list of one. A lot of people love <laughs> wow. fiction. A lot of people. But this, what it looks like is Trump, truth. Trump and Bannon are fighting over the base of people that elected Trump. Yeah, because Bannon's out there acting like he's a kingmaker, right? He's going into yeah. individual elections, he made and it happen, putting up candidates against the what he sees as the establishment candidate. And uh, Trump is trying to, or at least his staff, yeah. is trying to word things to show that you know, you're not the kingmaker. I am. But then Bannon's like, but you supported Roy Moore. Hello. And then yeah. and Trump's like, no, 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 you supported hey, don't Roy tell Moore. tell me I supported <laughs> It wasn't Roy my Moore. fault. That was your fault. <laughs> Everyone's like trying to get away from it. He's like, poison, poison. Yeah. Uh, you know, the weird thing is, too, that he, um, they, they said that when Trump found out he was going to win. Mm. That he looked like a ghost. A ghost. Like he, he was scared. <laughs> he looked like his animatronic Disney yeah. Trump. Because, but he, uh, but it also kind of validates an opinion that we had way back in the day. <laughs> but he wasn't trying to win? He wasn't trying to win. He was doing this to just get better positioning as a business person, mm-hmm. which this would elevate his game. Oh, yeah. And we're playing ominous scary music because this is the animatronic yeah, Disney. This still plays the is Hall it, of Presidents. So instead of like playing, this is associated with ghosts. Yeah, and he looked like a ghost, okay. or he looked like he had seen a ghost. Yeah. So which building is he in at Disney? 
He's in the Hall of Presidents right when you enter the Tower Main Street. Of Terror. Oh, not oh, wait. The, yeah, the Tower because this sounds like Tower of Terror. <laughs> right on Main, the, the Tower of Terror is no more. By That's the way, right. it's the Guardians sad. of the Galaxy ride. So you want to get in? You want to get into the entrance of Disneyland? You want to head off, veer to the right, yeah. and the Hall of Presidents is going to be on the right of Main Street. Sounds like somebody's been to Disneyland quite a bit. Well, and Southern California, and that's kind of a tease for a story that's coming up later, too. Uh-oh. Oh, boy. Teasing ahead. He's pre-teasing. Once he pre-teases, we know the show's half over. Let's get to the rest of the headlines. Terry, what else should we be paying attention to? So yesterday, The Guardian got a hold of one of these copies yeah, of this book they're from all Michael Wolf. They found it in New England. And uh, the, so the reporter went through it, grabbed some quotes, put it out there, and then it forced the New Yorker to speed up their cover story for the weekend and put that out yesterday afternoon. And uh, some of the stuff in there was kind of interesting, too. It says, the second excerpt published in the Michael Wolf book, the journalist paints the portrait of a President Trump who is increasingly repeating stories, cannot recognize old friends, and is viewed by his closest, closest allies as incapable of functioning in his job. The bombshell book Fire and Fury Inside the Trump White House describes a scene where at Mar-a-Lago, just before the new year, a heavily made-up Trump failed to recognize a secession of old friends. Uh, Wolf writes, it used to be uh, inside of 30 minutes he'd repeat word for word and expression for expression the same three stories. Now it was within 10 minutes. Really? Wow. So it used to be a 30-minute span. Uh-huh. Now it's 10-minute span. Indeed, many of his tweets were the product of his repetitions. He just couldn't stop saying something. Trump and former top strategist Steve Bannon traded public barbs Wednesday over the newly released contents of the book. Bannon, in his first comments since the excerpt uh, were revealed, didn't dispute the accuracy of the attributions in the book. Huh. Uh, President Trump's lawyers have sent a cease and desist order to former White House strategist Steve Bannon for prevent, preventing him from making disparaging comments about the president and his family. The move comes after the excerpts from this book came out. Uh, Charles Harder, one of Trump's lawyers, said in a statement late Wednesday that legal action is imminent. The statement warns Harder reported, reportedly informed Bannon he could, could be forced to fork over monetary damages for his disparaging and, in some case, outright defamatory comments. Whoa! Hmm. Now, Bannon has a Sirius XM radio show. Oh, he does? Well, uh, Ish. Breitbart has a Everybody channel, has right? one of those. Right. But Steve Bannon hosted <laughs> last night, and all these reporters on Twitter are listening, waiting for any comments. And they were just taking phone calls from people, and no one mentioned it. Really? And one person at the end sort of alluded to it, and then Bannon said, he goes, I'm in full support of the president. You all know this. That's all he said. This was last night? This was last night. What? These two can't keep their stories straight. I know. It's kind of fun. Wouldn't you rather read this book at the end of a four-year term as opposed to after the first year in office, though? I'd rather not read the book. <laughs> well, you don't have I to. I feel like I've lived through it. You don't have to read it. And apparently, according to the book, President Trump never will because he doesn't read. Good point. But it will be on Fox News. He watches the news. Uh, a Yale University psychiatrist says she has traveled to Washington last month to brief lawmakers for two days about President Donald Trump's mental state. Uh, Dr. Brandy X. Lee, an assistant clinical professor in law and psychiatry at Yale Law of Medicine, or wow. Yale School of Medicine, told Politico that she met with more than a dozen members of Congress, all Democrats and one Republican. Who's the Republican? Who's the Republican? We feel that the rush of tweeting is an indication of his falling apart under stress. Trump is going to get worse and will become uncontainable with the pressures of the presidency, she says. Well, now there seem, there's a rule in the, tomorrow, in the mental health tomorrow world. Tomorrow, our, our, our 7 a.m. guest 
is why psychiatrists should not be involved in the presidency. Yeah, yeah it's because you, you really shouldn't try to diagnose somebody you're not no. treating. Right. You're just looking at tweets, trying to guess, and you don't know what's but going on. Aren't we, you? Yeah. Aren't you giving us diagnoses all no. the time? No, no, no. Yeah, he is. He is. They're not diagnoses. No. He's going to call them fact. They're insights. See? Hmm. Yeah, but you can't. I've never diagnosed him as whatever. Yeah. Neurotic. So we'll talk about this a little bit tomorrow. That's interesting. With someone who has that. Yeah. That point of view that you shouldn't be able to, you shouldn't do but this. There, there, hard, there is a rule that you don't do this professionally, yeah. right? I mean, we do it all the time just around the office right? with each other. Yeah. But we'd never do it on air with the president. <laughs> anyway. In other news, uh, yesterday, well, was it yesterday? Yeah, it was yesterday. We were talking about how Senator Orrin Hatch announced he's going to step yeah. down, not yeah. run again. He is saying if Mitt Romney wants to run, he'll support him. Oh, is wow. this a surprise, though? No, not really. Okay, he said it, and that's the first thing he's really if said. If Mitt wants to run, <laughs> he'll support him. Yeah, if that's Mitt's going to run, and it's like if, yeah, he changed his status on Twitter to Holiday Utah. Of course, he's running. Of course, he's yeah. running. Yeah. <laughs> Plus, that guy can raise money. Right. He's the real deal. I mean, next to Orrin Hatch. And I saw yesterday that the Trump White House. One of the concerns may be that he does that. Mitt Romney does have that organizing ability. And he could make another run at the White House. Especially hmm. if he can somehow move all of these independents that have been moving away from Trump. Right. Then he now owns the middle. Yeah. And if he doesn't run, he'll be that thorn in the side. Yeah. Everybody loves level. a thorn in the side. And finally, a crisis in Oregon. What? Changes can be a scary thing, but the rest of America isn't overflowing with sympathy for Oregonians freaking out about the fact that they are now allowed to pump their own gas. The, Sorry, that the, was <laughs> the state partially lifted its ban on self-service gas on January first, allowing people in rural counties. You mean you mean regular people? Yeah, with less than forty thousand people. Are they educated? So rural counties, less than forty thousand people, to pump their own gas between what? six p.m. and six a.m. Hmm. What are they thinking? So, so the truckers, basically, that are so passing through. Small communities yeah. after 6 p.m. before 6 a.m. So someone doesn't have to sit there all night long yeah, to be yeah. able to pump gas for Because there's not money in that. Right. They're trying to help out the small business in Oregon. Right. But it seems like uh, they're trying to pay. They're trying to create a job for somebody. So one, well, so one Facebook poll from a local TV station there. Uh, a person said, I've lived in this state all my life, and I, cap, all caps, refuse to pump my own gas. I had to do it once in California while visiting my brother, and I almost died doing it. I have carpal tunnel because the, of it. <laughs> the Oregonian writes, this is a, oh, oh, the person goes on and says, this is a service only qualified people should perform. Really? Yeah. No, are you serious? That's what it said. New Jersey still bans self-service gas, but many in the other 48 states were amused by the worries of Oregonians. Kale uh, Williams at the Oregonian newspaper notes that the law introduced in 1951 protected around 10,000 jobs and says people sneering at the state may just be jealous of their, quote, fancy gas waiters. Generally, the best food is delivered to you by an attendant well-versed in the ways of the cuisine who smiles and makes sure you've got everything you need. Hold and on. this music plays because he writes, could it be the rest of the country is mad that they don't have access to the fine dining equivalent of gasoline? Hold mm. it. We're not eating. You're, if you're... If you're if you're eating at a TGI, TGI Fridays or right. whatever, yeah, yeah. you're kind of you're not getting the best quality. It's, this is fine dining. 
So, wait oh. a minute. I, I take issue with that comment about uh, people not being qualified to pump the gas because, let's face it, most drivers on the road are not qualified to be driving. True. 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 Dad. So, let's settle down on the gas pumping qualifications there. Well, and especially because in the other 48, 49 states or whatever, there are 16-year-olds pumping gas, and they seem to be doing all right. Yeah, because they drive their own car. Yeah. Yeah. There's 98-year-old like women pumping their own gas. Not the 16-year-old working at a gas station in Oregon pumping the I gas remember, for you. Those were great days. Don't oh, get me sure. wrong. Those were wonderful days when somebody would wash your windows and with a greasy rag and then would fill up your... That was awesome. they check your oil. That was great. It's just... It was in the 50s. Right. I will add on to my comment, though, about people not being qualified to pump gas. I frequently see people that have the handle upside down, which they specifically tell you not to do in the little picture. They're trying to get every drop they, out of it. No, 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 no. I'm just talking about, like, if you're trying to reach the opposite side of the car uh, and you yeah. don't want to stand there with yeah. it, yeah. it pulls back yeah. and it goes upside yeah. down. And yeah. then there are also the people that you yeah. mentioned trying to top it off. You don't have Big to. Big no-no. You can still. It shoots about a foot. So you could just shoot it just kind of into aim. the hole. <laughs> No, I see that at the uh, the big box stores that have the the gas station out in the parking lot. Yeah, and the people they usually they're one way for some reason, and so people pull in, and there's the only way that's available is the side on the other side of their car, right? So yeah. they pull in and then stretch the hose across their car and then mm-hmm. hook it in the back, and you're like, "What are you <laughs> All doing?" This tension. It's actually pulling on the car. Yeah, it's great. Uh, but th- by the way, when when the Pumping of gas was taken away from the the gas station attendant and given back to the people. Mm. That's about the same time they started allowing people to, to, you know, get their own soda fountain drinks. To go inside. Hmm. Remember, well, you used to have to have someone else get you the drink. Now you can get your own. Mm. And if you look at the soda fountains around the world, people apparently aren't ready for that either. No, they're a mess. (laughs) I I really don't think that the the gas station attendant's... Mind not having that responsibility, yeah. Especially I, if it's you know if it's at like a car dealership or a, like an auto mechanic shop, because they just want more time to pretend to work on your car. It, plus, it's got to drive gas prices up, right? So, is gas a lot more expensive in Portland and Oregon? It might be, but that may just be because it's on the coast. It's kind of a California spillover. Well, somebody's got to pay for this, dude. <laughs> Right. This so is true. I'm assuming that they jack the prices up. Right. Or well, they're, they're protecting jobs. Well, good job. And people are outraged between 6 p.m. and 6 a.m. in rural counties of under 40,000 people. My wife read all the <laughs> uh, the comments on social media from people that sincerely were worried about this and thought, I've, same as Terry said, I've, I've never had to pump gas my entire life, and I don't know if I'm going to be able to know how to do it, and... So then all the other comments making fun of those comments came through. Oh, now I have to look up videos on how to tie my shoe. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's sad. It's, see, we've weakened an entire state. We have. But what they're living the high life. They so have enjoy their fan, it. fancy gas waiters. Enjoy it while you can, folks, because eventually I bet it's going to go away. But it's only 6 p.m. to 6 a.m.? Well, that's when you can do it yourself in rural counties of under 40,000 people. Do do they also understand, though, there will be a day that we won't be using petrochemicals and fuel like that, right? Gasoline. Well, not not if the current administration has their way. Well, yeah, so maybe in four years. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So in four years, there will be some mandate that 
everybody has to just plug their car in. Then you're going to be in trouble, you Oregonians. Hey, uh, straight ahead, we're going to be talking about how um, there really is no place like home. But in order to get a home, you got to get through a lot of issues, wealth issues, community issues, politics, a lot of stuff behind owning a home. That's straight ahead on The Matt Townsend Show. From a white picket fence, red window shutters, a wraparound porch with a rocking chair, everyone has an image of their dream home. For decades, owning a home has been a major status symbol for most Americans. It is the most important, largest financial investment of their lives. It also provides individuals and families with a sense of community. However, uh, how have our nation's various uh, housing crises changed the meaning of home ownership? And how has the need for perfectly crafted communities become a source of residential segregation? A few months back, I spoke with Dr. Brian McCabe, author of No Place Like Home, Wealth, Community, and the Politics of Home Ownership. Dr. McCabe analyzes the challenges of home ownership as it continues to be a main uh, driving force for building wealth in the United States. I began the interview by pointing out uh, to Dr. McCabe that he is questioning home ownership, which is a big part of Americana. Yeah, no, it sure is, um, and, and I think that is what the book uh, sort of sets out to do, right? So, as you as you mentioned, the the book sort of set around this idea that home ownership is the most important tool that we have for building wealth today, and right, we. Um, that sort of came into focus even more so after the housing crisis. But that's something that, that hasn't changed that much, right? Americans have more wealth invested in their homes than we do in, in any other asset. So it continues to be this this really important tool for building wealth. Um, and at the same time, right, we, we tend to think of home ownership as, a, as, as maybe the most important way to build stronger communities, right? This idea that homeowners are more involved in their communities. Um, they're more interested in sort of keeping their neighbor neighborhoods up. They socialize and they interact with their neighbors more. Um, and so for, you know, at least a hundred years, I, I trace this back to, um, to the great depression and to the new deal and housing policies then, but we've thought that homeownership has been this really important tool for building communities. Um, and what I argue in the book is that because homeownership has become so important for building wealth, right? Because we're so interested in building wealth through housing, um, it really shapes the way that people become involved in their communities. And often when homeowners do become involved in their communities, right, they don't do so in, in a way that we necessarily think is civic or broadly broadly citizenship-oriented or community-oriented. Um, but instead, right, we're getting involved in our neighborhoods as a way to protect our property values, right. Right, to protect our wealth. Um, and, and those kinds of activities that homeowners are engaging in uh, aren't always uh, geared at creating better, stronger more stable communities, right? They're, they're geared at protecting property values, and that may cut against the ideology of, of homeownership as um, the sort of foundation of strong communities. So that's oh, yeah. the, the tension that I want to expose in the book. And, and you find, you're finding that in your research. It's When we buy a home, we really do. I mean, we go to our homeowners' meetings, and we're not usually saying, how do we unify the neighborhood and, and bring everybody yeah, in? Instead, it's more, yeah. you know, why did Billy build a shed? Because sheds make decrease our property value. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And, you know, I look, I use some data that's from, um, it's called the Social Capital Community Survey, but it really asks about the kinds of things that people do when they get involved in your community. So are, do you vote? Do you uh, volunteer? Do you attend town meetings? Do you join social groups, you know, uh, PTAs or membership groups? 
And, and what I find is once you um, sort of account for some differences between homeowners and renters, right, homeowners are involved in a, a relatively small set of activities at a higher rate than renters, right? But they, they're more likely to vote than renters. They're more likely to go to a community meeting where town politics are being discussed, right? Those sorts of things that you might do if you're trying to protect your property values. But on the other hand, when we look more broadly at civic engagement. So did you join a sports league in your neighborhood? Are you volunteering in your community? Do you socialize kind of regularly with your neighbors? Um, what I find is that when you look at homeowners and renters, they're actually not all that different, right? So on these broad measures of, of, of civic engagement and socializing with neighbors, homeowners and renters, you know, actually look pretty similar. Um, and, and related to this though, I think the, the interesting finding from this quantitative portion is what actually drives civic engagement, volunteering, and joining membership groups, it's not whether or not you own your home, it's how long you've lived in your neighborhood, mm. right? So people that live in their neighborhood for a long time, right, they're more likely to socialize with their neighbors. They're more likely to join those groups. And there was a time in the U.S. when buying a home and being stable in your community, right, those were really associated with each other. Right. But today that's, that's not always the case, right? The, the foreclosure crisis, the housing crisis reminds us that, you know, lots of people that bought homes uh, weren't able to stay in their communities for a long period of time. And, and one of the arguments that I make in the book is if housing policy, if we're really trying to encourage um, sociability in neighborhoods and community building, we should think about uh, how it is that we can encourage people to stay in their neighborhoods, regardless of whether they own or rent, right? Because renters are doing these things too right. when they stay in their neighborhood for a long period of time. Well, and aren't we also seeing with um, the millennials more people that are okay not buying a home, just renting? Yeah, no, that's right. And I, and I think that, um, you know, that comes from, from two things. I mean, they, after the housing crisis, right, there's a little bit more of a, of a hesitation on the part of millennials um, to enter into the housing market. Um, and I think at the same time, right, it, it's become a little bit harder to buy a home in the last 10 years. Right? It became very, very easy, almost too easy to buy a home. And now it's become harder. So people are pulling back. Um, but, you know, that said, I think that you know, as you mentioned, homeownership as this kind of ideology in, in America. When I was um, when I was doing my research, I looked through a lot of public opinion polls that have been asked about sort of what homeownership means and what the American dream means. Um, and and it's really interesting, even today, and even for young people, um, buying a home is still the the centerpiece of the American dream, right? It's, mm. it's more important than you know graduating from college is important to the American dream and doing better than your parents did. But homeownership still is this sort of ideology that almost all Americans uh, ascribe to, right? I remember one, one poll in the research said that um, 90% of homeowners are happy with their homeownership decision, and 75% of renters uh, aspire to ownership one day. Mm. You know, one of, the, one of the remarkable things about that, and I think especially in the context of our, of our current politics, is that we can't think of anything else that unites Americans uh, to the degree that homeownership does, right? That we all or right. almost all of us believe that buying a home is a good thing. So it's a really interesting sort of ideology that spans, you know, spans your politics. Um, even though millennials are less likely to buy homes and enter into homeownership, you know, they still do believe in the, the sort of power of homeownership. So it spans kind of all the social categories that we think um, divide people. Homeownership continues to to be one of those things that unites us. Yeah. I wonder if some of it's tied. I mean, I always have thought of home and family go together, kind of an idea yeah. where, you know, the reason I stay in my neighborhood longer is because my kids are in the schools. I'm also paying right. taxes in those areas. I mean, it's is it was it also, I guess, designed or I don't know if it was ever intentionally created this way, but it just seemed to support a pro-family, I guess that is pro-community environment. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, and I, and I think that's right. I mean, back in the so the the book traces um, some of the historical roots of our commitment to home ownership, and um, and you know what it what it really comes out of, or what I think it really comes out of, is the early 1900s, right, 1910s and 1920s. You get a lot of people moving from kind of rural areas into cities. So in 1920, in the United States, is the first time that the majority of Americans lived in cities, hmm. right? Um, and, and what goes along with that is this sort of uh, this instability and, te- and the rise of being a tenant, right? This moving away from, right, we're not yet in a suburban period, but moving away from um, kind of single family or farm or a tight-knit community as people move to the city, right, looking right. for work. And so there was concern at that time in the 1920s and into the 1930s um, that part of the reason there was so much instability in American cities was because people didn't own their homes and because they, they weren't homeowners, they weren't tied to their communities, right? People were going to cities, they were looking for work. Um, you know, there's some, some threats of political radicalism, right? Bolshevism and anti-democratic movements. Um, and so there's this idea, there's this hope uh, that, that if you could make people homeowners, right, they'd be more committed to their country, they'd be more committed to their community, they'd be more patriotic. And, and in thinking about that, I think it's also important to keep in mind that in the 1920s and the 1930s, um, only about 40, 45% of Americans own their own homes, right? And compare that to the, the peak of the housing crisis, you know, 2006, 2007, um, almost 70% of Americans own their own homes. So, so it's not the case that the United States was always a nation of homeowners, and it wasn't actually until after the Second World War, um, right, and you get these kind of massive suburbanization uh, that you get the majority of Americans living in, in homes that they owned. So, and, and I think that's really the period, kind of 1950s and 1960s, when we start to tie up these ideas of owning a home and single-family detached homes um, and what it means to live in a family and sort of what that ideal you know, American family looks like. Um, and, and, you know, today, uh, single-family homes are overwhelmingly owned by the people that live in them, and multifamily units, right, in, in cities are overwhelmingly rented um, by people. So there really is this connection between single-family mm-hmm. homes and home ownership and kind of and, and family life um, that, you know, that has at least a, a 50, probably a longer, 50-year, probably a longer history yeah. um, in the United States. Oh, um, it's it's It really is an interesting um, little yeah. uh, ex- exploration you've done. Again, we're speaking with Dr. Brian uh, J. McCabe. He is a, a professor, associate professor at Georgetown University. And uh, we're talking about his book, No Place Like Home, Wealth, Community, and the American Dream. We We historically, we've had guests on the show as well that have brought up you know, some of our, our history of maybe using real estate and home ownership as a way of moving and even segregating people mm-hmm. and like moving, yeah, you know, moving the whites to the suburbs and moving and keeping minorities in the inner cities and then eventually moving them into the suburbs just outside of the inner cities. But talk yeah. about that. Talk about what ends up happening and what you've learned in your research about how we sometimes use home ownership that way. Yeah, you know, there's um, one of the things that I wrestle with in the book that I think is a, a sort of interesting, interesting point that comes out of it is that you know we talk about homeownership as a very inclusive institution, right? That right. Um, everybody should have access to it, and once you sort of work hard enough and and save enough money, right, we're going to encourage you and help you to, to buy a home. So this is something for right that, that's for everybody. It's central to what it means to be American, to our identity as citizens. Um, but but I show in the book that not only historically has homeownership been a very exclusionary institution, but actually some of the politics around homeownership today are exclusionary as well, right? So on the historical side, I mean, there's a long history of 
um, of redlining in the United States, right, of, of, of not lending in um, predominantly African-American or changing neighborhoods, right. right, which meant that there was very little credit available in those neighborhoods um, to buy homes. Uh, and that, you know, has intergenerational effects that carries on from one generation to another, right? Today, um, you know, kids when or, or young people, when they buy homes, right, they often borrow money from their parents or their parents take out equity from their homes to help their kids buy a home. So, um, so this sort of carries on from one generation to another. And we see that in the, the tremendous gap um, between blacks and whites in the home ownership rate today. It's about a 25-point gap between blacks and mm. whites. Um, in the, the, the percentage that own their own homes. So, so there's a historical set of practices, um, right, that have created um, kind of these racial gaps in home ownership. A lot of the suburbs that were originally built um, were primarily for or exclusively for whites, not even primarily for whites. So in the post-Second World War period, right, the Levitt towns and kind of other American suburbs um, were, were built for white Americans. And so that has sort of lingering consequences. And so the, the book wrestles with kind of the, the history of that exclusive part of it. And then today, though, you know, I also talked, and we mentioned this just before the break, about um, the way homeowners engage in this exclusionary politics. So one of the things that I argue in the book through a number of case studies of different towns and cities in the United States is that, you know, often by working to protect our property values, um, homeowners are working to keep particular kinds of people or particular types of land uses out of their neighborhoods, right? So um, oftentimes homeowners don't want affordable housing to be built in their neighborhoods, right? They right. see affordable housing as um, attracting people that are a lower socioeconomic status than them. Um, much of this is very racially coded language, right, especially in the suburbs. Um, and so, so, so the people will say, well, you know, I think that this is going to lower my property values. And as a taxpayer, as a taxpaying homeowner, Right. I don't want this to lower right, the value of my largest investment. Um, but what that means is that right, lower income folks don't have the opportunity to move to high opportunity neighborhoods. Right? Right. Homeowners are working to exclude them from from their neighborhoods, um, working to exclude certain kinds of land uses. Right. Things that we don't you know, a homeless shelter, for example, in a city. Um, right. There's often these um, sort of nimby battles within cities to, to keep undesirable land uses out of our neighborhoods because we think that um, those are going to lower our property value. So, so the, the sort of point that I, that I try to bring out in the book is that our, our, our intense focus on property values through housing um, often means that we're creating these communities that are more segregated, that are less integrated, that are less inclusive, right? that are more racially segregated because we're intent on protecting, protecting our property values. So, mm. so it really challenges this question of whether homeownership is an inclusive institution Right? Or is it something that leads us to be exclusive in our politics and in our behavior? And I, I think it's just a great idea to ask your, everybody to ask themselves that. Do, yeah. do, how do we use it? Do I, how do I think? Like when they are building more apartments in my neighborhood area, do, does that bother me? Because I do think my property values will drop and I don't want certain people in my neighborhood. That's, I mean, we all need to evaluate our own use of that. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and, and I think that, you know, it's important, too. I mean, I, I, say, I say these things that are critical of homeownership for sure, right? And, and I think it's important to be critical of it. Um, and, but we should do so alongside the recognition that there are lots of benefits to owning a home as right. well, right? right? So, you know, unlike rent, where your rent may rise over years, right, your, your mortgage payment, if you have a traditional loan, right, is pretty steady over time. People feel a lot of personal freedom, right, to, to redecorate and to, to, you know, feel at home in their own homes. Um, it still is, right, in many ways, a, g- a good way for building wealth. So I don't mean to sort of discount right. or disparage some of the benefits of home ownership. I, I mean only to right, encourage us to talk about the way that 
uh, this may not be as good for communities as we as we often think that it is. Well, I we have I live in a community in Utah and which doesn't have a lot of minorities, and my kids uh-huh. my kids are sad about it. They 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 want more they want more diversity they want more um but again you're sitting i'm sitting there with a brand new high school and a brand new junior high and a brand new middle yeah. school and it's all white and um yeah. and by the way and the and the best diversity we get is when we get to church where our church area includes apartment buildings and there's diversity and all of a sudden uh-huh. you feel normal yeah well, and that's, you know, the, the, the sociologist in me, right, is really committed to, to this idea. I mean, when we're around people that are different from us, right, when we interact kind of regularly in our neighborhoods, in our schools with people that are different, different than us, whether it's class diversity or racial diversity, right, we learn about them, we become empathetic. Um, and, and so I think there's a value to having that kind of unexpected encounter with people that are just different from us, right? Yeah. Um, and this is something that in segregated neighborhoods, whether they're segregated because of home ownership or segregated for right, any number of other reasons, um, right, people aren't interacting with people that are different than they are. And this is, you know, sort of presents a challenge for um, how, you know, how we live our lives, how empathetic we become, how much, how, how tolerant we are, how much we embrace diversity when that's not part of our everyday uh-huh. lives. And, and again, we, we don't even think about it just because it's a home. I, one of the reasons I love the home ownership idea is because it almost, I feel compelled to save and invest, basically, is what I'm doing. Yeah. And I was, I was, I look at all of these um, supposed millennials that they're okay in an apartment, and then they're just using their their discretionary money to to travel and to have life experiences. Yeah. And I think, yeah. well, that's cool. But then I worry yeah. that in fifty <laughs> or thirty years, are they going yeah. to have a retirement? Are they going to have a nest egg? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, the idea of saving and investing for home ownership. So, you know, as long as you and I have a, you know, traditional 30-year mortgage where I have to put down 5 10 or 20% and I have a regular monthly payment, then home ownership is a good way to save and invest, right? But, but one of the, you know, the big challenge in the lead-up to the housing crisis was that, um, right, our loans became so exotic where you didn't have to put down money and you just had to pay the interest, so you were never paying down the principal, right? right. There were all these, all these loans that... Um, like got people into home ownership. You know, you, you think saving and investing through home ownership, but that's not true if you're only paying down the principal or right. you have no equity in your home. So, and, you know, there was a time. One of the things that I found in, in the historical research on home ownership was in the 1910s and 20s and 30s, people put down 50 percent, right? So you actually had to save money yeah. before you could buy a home, right? Whereas today, you could put down five percent, ten percent, and then you save through home ownership rather than saving for it. Right? True. Save yeah. And then buy a house. You, your, your home now is the vehicle through which you save. So there's a real transformation, right, in, in, in how we think about home ownership as kind of a savings and investment vehicle, right? This is where, you know, the average homeowner has uh, about a third, 30 percent of his or her wealth in, in the value of their home. And for low-income, middle-income people, um, it's even higher than that. Yeah. Right? So for, for kind of middle-income Americans that are homeowners, you know, on average, about half of their wealth is in their housing, which is a really sort of remarkable, non-diversified asset to, 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 to build your wealth in. And especially and, when you think that um, how many people overreached, right? They overreached to get a bigger yeah. home so they, I guess, could supposedly have a bigger dream. But, and then it bit them. Right. And it and, and yeah. now and then they did have bankruptcies and they lost their home and now they're upside down. 
Right. No, absolutely. And, and, you know, the other part of the kind of last piece of the puzzle in the book is about the way the federal government subsidizes homeownership. Right. And um, and one of the things that I show is that the largest uh, the the mortgage interest deduction is one of the largest tax tax expenditures in the country. Right. I can deduct the interest payments on my mortgage loans from my federal tax liability. Right. And economists have shown for a long time that what that actually does is it encourages people to buy bigger homes. Right. Because uh-huh. They're, they're investing more money in housing because it's, um, it's deductible in a way that other, other interest payments are not. And so they tend to overconsume housing, right, which is to say they buy larger homes because the federal government incentivizes, right, buying into home ownership. And so I think that's another piece that we need to take really seriously is that the federal government uh, allows us to deduct our mortgage interest payments on our homes when we have capital gains on our homes, right? So if I sell my home and I make a profit on it, I don't have to pay taxes up to almost $250,000. Right. I can deduct all the state and local property taxes that I pay from my federal tax liability. So there are, there are all these other ways built into the tax code that homeowners are these tremendously privileged um, um, you know, recipients of tax windfalls on tax day. Uh, and so you know, it's another piece of this puzzle. Why is the federal government so interested in subsidizing homeownership and what are the consequences of, of them doing that? Especially again when it brought our economy to its knees. Yeah, no, absolutely. And there's been, you know, almost no frank discussion of uh, sort of rethinking home ownership policy in the U.S. I mean, even if you, uh, you know, to hear the HUD secretary, Julian Castro, talk about it today, home ownership still is, um, you know, high opportunity. It should be this inclusive institution. Um, and there's been, you know, of course, a lot of GSE reform and thinking about how we finance home ownership, but 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 very little change, I think, in this kind of ideology that everybody should be or could be a homeowner. So what do we do, Brian, as we wrap this up? What does what yeah. should the average homeowner, dad with uh, four kids at home, what should yeah. I be thinking about to make, to make sure I'm not letting it kill me, but I'm not also just, I'm not segregating. I'm not keeping people out. I'm, what should I do? Yeah, well, you know, I think that there are there are sort of two levels that I think about this question on. So what can I do as a homeowner, right? And and I think it's, you know, to be reflective and to be aware of the way that I'm becoming involved in my communities. Yeah. Um, to, to think about, um, you know, when my actions are uh, geared at, you know, reinforcing patterns of segregation or economic inequality. And, you know, to sort of step back. I mean, one of the things that, um, that I'm interested in as a social scientist is that a lot of the things that we think lower our property values actually don't. So there's been quite a bit of work on, you know, when subsidized housing comes in, when homeless shelters come in, there's very little negative effects um, in, in real terms. So, I mean, I think that's one thing that we can do at the individual level. Um, I think we can also back up and, and sort of think more broadly about the policies here. So why is it um, that the federal government still does encourage homeownership so much? And one of the things that I argue is that instead of encouraging ownership, we should be encouraging stability, right? We could have tax credits that are associated with stability. And the federal government could be rethinking the way we, you know, encourage people to live and buy homes and to, to value renting, even long-term renting as a sort of equal option, to think about ways that renters could also build assets, to think about other kinds of home ownership, right, whether it's um, um, sort of shared equity or community land trust or something else that sort of takes it outside of this model of, individual homeownership. Yeah, that's, um, I mean, it really is. And it, it, I think the reason too, Brian, is it's so complicated that most of that's us right. just barely right. were lucky to get our mortgage. Well, yeah. we appreciate it. I think it's a, I think it's an interesting discussion that uh, we need, Great. we need to have these open dialogues and make sure that 
we are inclusive, not just not just talking it, but we need to see it. We need to see more um, open communities that are inclusive. Appreciate it. Yeah. Brian, thank you so much. Keep up the great work there at Georgetown. Again, Brian J. McCabe, uh, associate professor at Georgetown University, also the author of No Place Like Home, Wealth, Community, and the Politics of Homeownership. Wanting to open up your minds, folks, right? All of us. We think about it. You, me, we need to figure out. um, We have all of these things that we just keep doing, and I'm not sure we've even thought it through. You don't always need a house. You might need an apartment. How about a condo? How about a house boat? There's a lot of different ways to create a home. And uh, many times it's the house that's the actual entity itself that might be the least important. It might be more the feeling that's inside the home. We'll take a break, folks. Come back. Continue this first hour of the Matt Townsend Show, helping you find the good in the world. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. It's that time of the program where we get to turn it over to our empty news reporter, Jeffrey Liam Simpson. He's actually our anchor of the empty news. Empty news meaning it stands for MT, Matt Townsend News. Whoa. Uh, Yeah, that's right. Matt Townsend News. Not empty, like vacuous. Right. And usually I'll give you these stories ahead of time just so that, you know, you can be a little more well-versed in them. But today I specifically did not give them to you. You're trying to trap me somehow. No, no. It's just a simple quiz. Okay. Want to see how well you do. Let me get my paper. I want you to guess. Yes. Which state has the worst drivers in the United States? The worst drivers in the United States would obviously be Florida. Okay. The worst drivers in the United States would then have to be Arizona. California. Are they really? That's I'm going, right. I was going with the warmer states. I grew up there, and that's that seems about right. Is it? <laughs> but I think every state. Don't, doesn't everybody think their state are the worst drivers? I think everybody thinks that, but yeah. But I, California, it's been proven. This is a study. According to uh, Quote Wizard, they, a study conducted by Quote Wizard, it's a national auto insurance company, found that 2017 saw an increase in moving violations as well as DUI arrests in the Golden State. Really? This should come as no surprise if you've ever driven on the 101, particularly in Los Angeles. Uh, and L.A. obviously is infamous for its traffic, uh, its notorious traffic. And you know, However, L.A. is not the worst city to drive in. Okay. Can uh, you, you want to take a guess? Boston, Massachusetts. No, 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 no. no. The, wor- the worst city in California. We're oh, still in, in California. California. Well, I would say Los Angeles. No, no, no. It says Los Angeles is not the worst city oh. to drive in. The worst city in California – would have to then be Hollywood. No. Why? Well, take another guess. I'll give you one more. What's another city that would be? It's surprising. San Francisco. It starts with an S, but no, that's not San right. Diego, San Jose, San Sacramento. Luis Obispo, Sacramento. Oh, really? Yes. Yeah, I wouldn't even have gone. The there. capital. Okay, now can you guess where? Can you guess where the best 
drivers are in the United States. The best drivers in the United States would be... You mean the safest or the most accommodating? Uh, it just says best. Okay. Uh, I'm going to go with probably the nicest people in the United States, which would be Nebraska. Oh, that was rude. <laughs> um, how about Idaho? Well, where would the best I will give be? you a little hint. Okay. The smallest hint I could give Delaware. you. Delaware. Rhode Island. That is the one. Rhode Island has Why? the best drivers in the United States. I don't know if I believe that. I don't know if this is per capita or what, but uh, yeah. You know what? Rhode Island needs something. They always are forgotten. Really? And Delaware. They're both forgotten. It also says Providence, Providence, Rhode Island, uh-huh. has the country's second best drivers apart from Detroit. Really? I mean, I guess in a way it makes sense because that's where they're made. And if you can see something being made, maybe you appreciate it more and you'll take care of it. And you want to keep your car moving in Detroit. But I <laughs> – You want to keep every, yeah. all the traffic flowing. But that's surprising. Yeah. I didn't Detroit. Know, I wouldn't think Detroit. But I would think Michigan would have great drivers. Or Minnesota with all their lakes. Just yeah, but everyone's you, driving around a lake. That would be lake. a distraction, right? Would it? Yeah, just be calming. The Great Lakes, wouldn't you do some bottlenecking there? Yeah, probably. I'd pull over to bottleneck. But at least it's not Utah, which sometimes I question maybe Utah is even worse than California. The worst in Utah is around BYU campus. (laughs) Not to be rude, but it's like, especially like when it snows, there's people that obviously have never seen snow. Yeah, true. Some have obviously never even seen a car. True. And they're driving one. We just talked about this earlier, so yeah. how most drivers are not even qualified to do that. They're not. And I love a good snowstorm. I love living on the edge. By the way, BYU campus is a great way to play the license plate game because yeah. you have cars from, from all everywhere. over the country. It's pretty cool. Even Hawaii. Yeah, which is – those are the ones that are always rusted out because of the, the, <laughs> how they drove here. Um, anyway, interesting little insight for all of y'all. Pretty fun. Knowing that, uh, hey, if you don't live in California – then quit complaining about your drivers. It could be worse. You could be trying to drive in California. They're mad because they don't get any snow days. In Sacramento, California. Exactly. Okay, folks, uh, we'll continue the journey. This is the Matt Townsend Show, doing what we can to help you live longer, love stronger, and lead healthier lives. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, fellow travelers. In the journey of life, welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here, along with Terry and Jeff. The gang we've gathered, the band is together. Jeff on the keyboard. Terry doing vocals, and I, of course, on the mandolin. This is actually our reunion tour. Yes. We broke up once. We've we've resolved the issues, though. Yeah, well, Yoko, we kicked her out. Money heals all wounds. (laughs) Yeah. We we raised the salary. (laughs) Isn't that how it works? They all... The bands get back together because, well, there's money. Yeah, we need money. They may have separate tour buses for each one, but they're fun. (laughs) 
<laughs> it's so true. It's so true. Uh, we're we're so glad to have you along for the journey here. We've got a lot to cover, including holy cow, the East Coast is in whiteout conditions. This is a uh, what we're calling a chilly hurricane. Hmm. A frigicane. It's either a bomb cyclone. Yeah. A weather bomb, or as I was talking to you guys in the break, a bombogenesis. Yeah, that's all the medium. great gladiator names. Right, I like a chilly hurricane. Do you like the chilly hurricane? It's just it's it's not good. Twelve people have died because of this monster storm along the east coast, uh, parts of Long Island. Zero percent visibility. You can't see. So you know what? Don't leave. Don't leave. Stay home. On Long Island, you could walk right into the ocean if you're not careful. Don't leave. Just stay home. Turn so on the heat. The and- National Weather Service says the storm should be over by early Thursday in the southern states. Ugh. For most of Thursday, he, uh, they say the storm will impact the northeast with Boston possibly getting up to 14 inches of snow. The storm will then be followed by a wave of bracing cold. The Weather Service expects 28 major cities across New England, eastern New York, wow. and the mid-Atlantic states will have record low temperatures by dawn on Sunday. Mm. Do you remember, was it last year or the year before when Boston got all that snow and they piled it up? It was a couple years ago. And then all the trash and stuff they picked up out of the road as they plowed the Uh, roads was just sitting there as it melted. Yeah, Just a big Mm. pile of dirt. But uh, by the way, a great way to clean a city. Right. Well, what people it's were God's doing way of cleaning the city <laughs> on the streets, they were digging out a parking spot and then they're putting like a folding chair in there. So no one would park there. Yeah. Right. Because there's absolutely no parking because of the extra snow everywhere. And by the time it snowed some more, the plows would come by and pick up all that extra debris people were saving spots with. <laughs> by the way, <laughs> where'd our lawn chair? Where's go? the laundry basket? Are, What's that? <laughs> are either you either of you the type of person that will put cones or trash cans in front of their curb? No. We have a neighbor that to does prevent that. people from parking there on government property. The week before no. the Fourth of July, in my neighbor, my neighbor, there's a park, and they do a fireworks display. And people will do that to save parking spots because the neighborhood just floods as yeah. an overflow yeah. of parking for yeah. everyone coming to see this. And so they'll do that. They'll put up like caution tape and stuff I'm, to kind of block it off. But I don't. I'm more like one of the I'm out there people charging. that would charge them to park on my lawn. Oh sure, like <laughs> ten bucks. Come on in. Ten but bucks. I mean. Isn't that illegal to block off parking spaces that aren't yours? Yeah, it's the street. Well, it's more the spirit of it. Yeah, the cops don't care. Hmm. This is my domain. And if I want you to park on my lawn, you can pay me. If you want to accidentally park on my lawn by having your tire on my lawn, then I'm going to have to charge you. I had someone pass out on my lawn after that overnight fireworks display. Wow. Neighbor was, came over and go. There was a guy sleeping on your your lawn last night. I I told him to move on. I'm like, all right, hmm. thank you, thanks. So, There's so many people in the neighborhood. It's crazy. I'm not a fan of the cones or the trash cans. But having said that, one neighbor can disrupt the entire oh. block of parking. So if you have one neighbor, let's just say who has a motor home that mm-hmm. they refuse yep. to park in their backyard or on their driveway. They'll park it in front of somebody else's house. So that person is forced to park their motorhome somewhere else yeah. in front of your house. And it's just this big game of musical chairs. Yesterday, <clears throat> guy down the street having his driveway repaired, 
right? So he has oh, guys out yeah. there with the cement cutters. Uh, he has five cars. They're all in the street. Uh-huh. So all the neighbors are like parking on down. Yeah. See, it's like a musical okay. chairs down the street. But here's the problem. As I don't know if you guys know this, but I'm Mormon. I'm, a, I'm LDS. Really? Really? Yeah. When did and, this happen? Uh, well, a long time ago. Okay. And um, Did Rudy convert you? Yeah. yeah Rudy. Rudy. Notre Dame. Um, but, well, him and... Um, the Osmonds. And Ricky Schroeder. Oh, yeah. Silver Spoons. Yeah. Let's just name all the famous ones. <laughs> but um, well, the problem is, we, not the problem, but we have really large families. So when these families come home for not Christmas- Not all of us. Well, it well, is a stereotype. Well, it is, except it's actually, like in my neighborhood, there's a lot of parents that have six kids. Hmm. It's mostly true. We have six kids. Our neighbors have six kids. The people down the street have- So when when you have gatherings and every all oh, the yeah. kids come home- Literally, between us and the neighbors across the street, I think in the two homes, uh, we must have had 12 to 14 cars. And there's nowhere to put them all. Nowhere. So it's dangerous. So Rent a car carrier. One of those big semi-trucks and just park what the cars. What we need is a valet. Well, yeah. We need a valet running between the lots. There's really no logic to, to our way of thinking, though, because we both park inside our garage. Yeah. And yet we, there's still this sense of ownership like, oh, I don't like how close they are parked to our house there. You're going to drop grease on my <laughs> front pavement. Not good. That's my speck of public street. What are so, you doing? So it could be worse. It could be storming and having hurrachills um, all over. Rich Hills, huh? You keep coming up with new names. I, I think uh, they should all be considered. Yeah, I, I like it. Uh, yeah. Sounds like a Rihanna song. Hurricanes. Oh, I think it was Hurricanes. Uh, yeah, because then there was the Hizza Chills, which mm, was by that's Kanye. Diddy. Was that Kanye? Oh. Was it P Diddy? Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, the storms. Just know you're grateful. Be grateful because it could be so much worse for the rest of you. The East Coast being is being bombarded. Uh, not just with the frigid temperatures, but also in Washington, D.C., the frigid response from President Trump and the latest uh, Wolf book. Yes. The Wolf Pack has hit him. Let's just start the news. This will be up. Michael Wolf, author of the hotly anticipated as of yesterday afternoon, tell all book. I don't know if many people knew this was coming out. Now it's hotly anticipated. Yeah. It'll, I think it'll be out Tuesday next week but is the it, official release date. It should be anticipated. He was walking around the White House. Well, that's what they're saying is that he pinned a column for The Hollywood Reporter this morning that offered a first-person perspective on his experience, quote, plunking himself down day after day on a West Wing couch. Uh, in his book, Fire and Fury, Inside the Trump White House, is published as part of uh, The Guardian and uh, some in New York Wednesday. The outraged uh, excerpts roiled, as you're talking about, yeah. everyone's on fire, screaming and going nuts. The excerpts, uh, what portion portrayed the uh, Trump White House as a pit of hapless chaos with disillusioned or worse, feuding aides. And former chief strategist Steve Bannon standing at the center of all the whirlwind. As Wolf explains in his Thursday column, Trump's staff was constantly in combat, partly because of their unnatural combination. There was Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump. Yeah. There were Democrats. There were former chief of staff Reince Priebus, a mainstream Republican. And there, were, and there was Bannon, who whose reasonable claim to be one per, the one person actually representing Trumpism so infuriated Trump that Bannon was hopelessly sidelined by April. Yeah. Trump kept saying, or Bannon kept saying, I'm representing what Trump stands for. And Trump's like, no, I do. No, there's, there's too many egos in that room. All that intermingling created a crackling tension, which sometimes did explode. The staff became focused on the more lethal battles within the White House itself, Wolf writes. 
This includes screaming fights in the halls and in front of the bemused Trump in the Oval Office when he was not the one screaming himself, together with leaks about what Russians your opponents might have been talking to. All this going on at the same time, causing Ah, for the first few months of chaos. Right, right. And now they're saying, no, 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 Bannon's just making it all up. He's not even talking for me. More about the White House. The Trump White House is banning employees from using personal cell phones while at work, effectively cutting staffers off from their children and families, Bloomberg News reports. The ban imposed by Chief of Staff John Kelly is due to take effect Friday, with President Trump's aides to be barred from using their personal devices on White House grounds, according to the report. Aides say the move stems from cybersecurity concerns, not Trump's fear of unauthorized leaks to the press. The ban has reportedly prompted an outcry among some staffers who fear that the measure will keep their families from being able to reach them as they rush between meetings and put in long hours. If you remember, John Kelly's cell phone was compromised. Right. They don't know for how long, but it was something that was of major concern because it was someone actually listening on the device while he's sitting in with the president. That shouldn't happen. That's a big deal. And it's something they probably need to think about because the president, they put a lot of concern into his cell phone, but everybody else just brings in some random thing they got at the store. Ooh, that's a good point. Yeah. Well, and... Yeah, but they really should pay attention to the presidents, too. Yeah, probably. Uh, Former Trump campaign manager Paul Manafort on Wednesday filed a lawsuit against the Justice Department. Deputy Attorney General Rod uh, Rosenstein and Special Counsel Robert Mueller alleging that Mueller has acted outside the mandate given to him by the Rosenstein. In the lawsuit, Manafort challenges the statute that allows an independent special counsel to operate, and his lawyers allege that Mueller is acting as an arbitrary and... Uh, capric- capricious, capricious way by investigating matters not directly related to Russian interference. So he's gone outside his his purview. Interesting. And that the the whole concept of the special counsel in this situation yeah. is illegal. But not, according to the Fusion GPS people, what yes. was their name? They're like, no, they need to investigate a lot more about the money because that's where all. The- They're also saying that the dossier yeah. that was put out that the first tip of that came from the Trump campaign. Oh, thanks. <laughs> that's, that's been denied, of course, of course. But the Fusion GPS people said that. Wow. Democrat Doug Jones and Tina Smith sworn in to the Senate by Vice President Pence on Wednesday. Jones defeated Roy Moore in Alabama, and he became their senator, uh, while uh, Smith was tapped by the governor of Minnesota to take the seat of former Senator Al Franken. So that happened yesterday. Well, good. They so, raised their hands and said, yes, we'll do it. So now it's officially, what, 51 49? I think that's the number they had right yep. here. Yes, 5149 yep. is Jones's, uh, yeah, taking over for Luther Strange, who was a Republican. Yes. Now that seat turns Democrat, 5149. Oh. Now Mike Pence cannot leave D.C. for any reason Ever. whatsoever. No. Nope. He has to be there <laughs> no to break every Pence. time. Uh, cybersecurity researchers have discovered two flaws in microprocessors that could grant hackers access to the entire memory stored on practically any computer on the planet. Really? Researchers said the name of one flaw, they've named it Meltdown because it basically melts security boundaries, which are normally enforced by the hardware. The name Spectre for the second flaw came from the fact that there is no easy fix, which means it will likely haunt us for quite some time. But Meltdown and Spectre, by the way, two nicknames we used to give Jeff. Do you oh, remember? Nice. I think those are also two names of James Bond films. They're saying the, mel- meltdown. the meltdown flaw they feel is in processors made by Intel since 1995. Really? Yeah. And the Spectre one could affect personal computers, smartphones, and servers because it's present on Intel processors as well as those made by AMD and ARM who are 
yeah. collectively make the vast bulk of processors yeah. in the world. They're the big process makers. Crazy. Interesting. But uh, what can you do about it? They're going to send out updates. One of them saying that um, on personal computers, the update may slow down computers by 30%. Oh, sounds like Apple. Yeah. So, yeah, it'll be great. Make you <laughs> go buy a new computer. Uh, so watch your updates. Emails may be coming out. Watch the news or do what most Americans will do and go, eh, whatever. Forget about it until the whole thing collapses. And That's fi- what I'll do. And finally, two pilots employed by Indian Air Jet Airways has been grounded after an alleged fight while the plane was in the air with 324 passengers on board on New Year's Day. Oh, no. Airline officials are investigating claims that the male pilot slapped his female colleague during an argument as well as that the, the two left the cockpit unattended as they were flying and no one at the controls while en route to London from I'm Mumbai. I'm out of here. No, I'm out of here. <laughs> According to several reports in the Indian press, the female pilot had to be persuaded to go back in by cabin crew because she was in tears. A misunderstanding occurred between the cockpit crew, the airline said in a statement. However, the same was quick, or the, uh, the same was quickly resolved amicably and the flight continued to its journey to mumbai landing safely but there was a fight and they were slapping and they both left the controls and just walked away as they were flying that along is scary now granted it's on autopilot right, Ooh, right. but you kind of need someone sitting there to make sure well, then, then there's the that inflatable moment. pilot yeah. from airplane there you go those are flying those are always embarrassing those inflatable pilots when you walk out, thanks for landing, and they're all like stiff and just sort of wobbling with the breeze, <laughs> blowing in the wind. <laughs> um, interesting. I've never heard of pilots fighting. Right. I mean, we've heard of them being inebriated, mm-hmm. uh, sleeping, sleeping. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. maybe watching DVDs. We've heard of yeah that they, they they're prone to get cancer because of the radiation through right. the boy, but never heard of slap fighting. <laughs> hmm. There's a problem in the cockpit. The cockpit? What is it? Oh, it's a room at the front of the plane that the pilots sit in. Oh, nice. Okay, good. <laughs> Are we doing theater now? No, is that like is theater. just... That's just... You just did a reading. It is a a loose recitation I like of, from, we, a, from a line from uh, one of my favorite comedies of all time. Hmm. Oh, Dumb and Dumber. Airplane. Okay, sorry. That um, Dumb and Dumber. Dumb and Dumber. A, a, it's a biopic about Jeff. <laughs> I love Dumb and Dumber. I I relate so much to Dumb and Dumber. I don't know why. It's a movie that's funny when you watch it with other people. Yeah, you have to watch it. You watch it yourself. You're like, that was unless you're 14, then it's just hilarious. It's smart funny too. It's smart. It's witty funny. Yes. Nothing funnier than being frozen to another human being on a motorcycle. Can't wait till my kid's 14. (laughs) Okay, here's a question for you. Mm. Uh, When you go in to buy something. How big of an impact do you think the color has on your psychology of what you will buy, how you will buy? Pretty big. Like, so if you had to choose... Like a car? Between a phone or a car, and they had the perfect car you wanted, and it was the perfect color. I would take the color. Yeah. My car is red. Both of our cars are red. uh, Whose car is red? Both of your cars are red. My car and my wife's car. Yeah. Both red. Uh Uh-huh. I might be looking for a new car right now. Of course, I'd go, ah, it's red. Mm. What's okay, wrong with well, red? Okay, well, I'll find something else. You don't want a red car because no. your dad said you'll get, you're more likely to get tickets. Sure. But it's my favorite color. I love red. I think it's, it's hot. And there's been studies that show that when you have a flashy car that's red or whatever, they'll, they'll sit there and watch you and just try to you know, get you for a ticket. Yeah. Whereas if you're in a dark blue car, you just kind of fade into the background and nobody cares. I, yeah. dr- I drove a gray truck. 
Yeah. I turned hmm. my head, headlights on because I was afraid people were going to hit me. Well, my... <laughs> boy, you're going to love being 48 years old because when you're 48, nobody's looking at you. Really? Yeah. Nice. Just so you know. So what was the Who said that? Who said that? I just made that up. 84.7% of consumers cite color as the primary reason they buy a particular product. How many? What 80, percentage? Almost 85%. Hmm. So color. I mean, even I, when I was buying my um, Amazon device. Right. Uh, Your personal My personal assistant. Amazon assistant device. Yeah, yeah. Which, by the way, if you ask your personal assistant that has a name that I won't say. Right. That rhymes with Barexa. Okay. Hmm. Play the you Matt could, Townsend you show. You could call the product the Echo because that's what it's called. I know, but I like saying Barexa. Yeah. Play the Matt Townsend show podcast. Hmm. Boop, 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 boop. It'll start our show right there. See, I believe this because whenever you're buying a piece of clothing or an electronic device, it's always the most popular colors that they're sold out of. Black. Yeah. I totally believe this. Well, in so electronics, was, it's the color black. When they, I was buying, they have all these Barexa, other colors. Right. You don't and want nobody it. Cares. You want the black. They want the black one. And um, by the way, 93% of the time, they say when people buy, they look at the visual appearance. 6% of the time, it's the texture that makes a difference to them. It's really? the feel. Wow. Like, have you ever checked out a new, some of the new cell phones that are almost too slick? They're yeah, too yeah. slippery. Mm-hmm. So you know you're going to drop that. Of course. Uh, and then 1% still try to decide on the smell. They're smelling stuff. Interesting. Like, boy, that phone smells weird. Well, that... That sweater, musty. Mm. By the way, eighty percent of the time, the eighty percent of people think that color increases brand recognition. Hmm. Okay. You know what I mean? Uh, what What color are the golden arches? Well, they're golden. It's in its name. But if those arches were black, it wouldn't have the same impact on you. Would it? Mm-mm. No. Okay. Uh, well, yeah. What is it about red and yellow that drives people to fast food? By the way. Those are the colors. They, they that do. Get do people. They do dominate all fast food. Yeah, they totally. Did you just win a, a something on eBay? You just threw your hands up. Yeah, in the I air. just won the eBay. <laughs> just, <laughs> I just the winning bid. All also, right. yellow very prominently featured in uh, eBay's. Yeah, logo. see, the color really matters. Hmm. And in fact, um, you know, like for example, can you tell me what color the Apple brand is? Silver. Is it? Like their logo? Uh-huh. It's like white, isn't it? I don't know. And I think they do it because, well, it's like right here on the back of yeah, your computer. Yeah, they use white and silver. Yeah, because it looks That's clean it. and sophisticated. Right. Colors matter, folks. That's the point. Uh, by the way, just to give you a little update, your favorite color is red. Mm-hmm. And what it evokes is strong emotions. It encourages appetite. It increases passion and intensity. Mm. Red roses symbolize love. It's, there's a lot of mm. red logos. Lego, CNN, hmm. Adobe, Coca-Cola, Toyota, Texaco. I have a Toyota. You a are red a, Toyota. You are a Toyota. Uh, <laughs> and Terry's favorite color is black. No. <laughs> Let's go with blue. Okay, there you go. Yeah. Because your car. Um, sure. Blue is associated with water and peace. Hmm. Two things I don't sense from you. <laughs> it's most preferred by men. Huh. It yeah. represents calmness or serenity. Yep. It helps curb the appetite. Mm. It's also known as a cold color. Yeah, well, what are you going to get? 
It increases productivity, and it's most used color for offices. Hmm. Blue. Why? Because they're cold and. Well, they, you put red on the walls. People get anxiety. Ah. Yeah. It's too much. Or it's, hungry. Apparently. Sure. Yeah. Uh, give me some red logos or some blue logos. Facebook. Yeah. Twitter. Yeah. LinkedIn. Yeah. American Express. They're Ford. All business related, pretty mm-hmm. much. Very deep. Oreo. Which, how many mm. times has Terry brought up an Oreo story? Constantly. It's exhausting. Uh, some people like orange. I'm more of a green guy myself. Green constitutes health green. and tranquility. Mm. It symembolizes money. Mm. Huh. Which I have none of. He's like, huh. Uh, it alleviates <laughs> depression. It, uh, workers in a green environment have fewer stomach aches. Really? Mm. Yeah. Totally. I question that. Well, read it. It's right here. Um, <laughs> Truth is here. It's connected to environmentalists. The green brands are Starbucks, Land Rover, Holiday Inn, mm. and of course, my favorite and your favorite, 7 Eleven. Right. Ooh. And Tropicana. 7-Eleven also has some red in it, though. And there's a red 7. And orange. Mm. Hmm. Slurpees and Oreos. Yeah. And anyway, Toyotas. Just a little walk down color lane. Isn't it fun, too, when you're watching a movie to try to spot how many Apple computer product placements they have there? Yeah. Well, in some cases, they don't do that, though. It's just a choice by the show. Like, Apple's not placing these, but they've started doing that more often now. But originally, they didn't do that. They want to seem hip. Yeah. Um, that's, that's the good news. So, you know what, guys, there's a lot, there's a lot of good going on in the world right now. Hey, uh, straight ahead though, we're going to be talking about the gift of failure. Sometimes it's okay to fail and uh, we'll tell you why straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend show, helping you be the good in the world and do it in a colorful way. Well, if you haven't learned it by now, you got to learn that failure is a part of life. So what was your biggest failure? It seems like an awful question, but we often learn from these experiences. What do we learn from failure? A few months back, I spoke with Jessica Leahy, who is an educator, a speaker, and author of The Gift of Failure. She suggests that uh, best parents learn uh, that the best parents learn to let go so their children can succeed. I began the interview by pointing out that we all live in a culture that is constantly trying to avoid failure. You know, I've worked as a teacher for a long time, and teachers get that. I mean, I think most teachers understand that there's a lot of flailing about and, you know, sitting with a little bit of frustration that happens before you kind of have a breakthrough and figure things out. But, you know, it's also really hard to see kids frustrated. And and the parent side of me was having a little bit of trouble seeing my own kids frustrated at the same time that I was angry at the parents of my students for not letting them get frustrated and not letting them feel the consequences of their mistakes. Yeah. Yeah. I think teachers get it for the most part. Well, it's funny, isn't it? Because when it's your child, uh, (laughs) you you almost want to protect them from any negativity, any pain. Yeah, and, and I don't know what happened to my brain. I think I got a big um, line down the middle, and my teacher brain and my parent brain weren't really talking to each other for a yeah. while. But, yeah, you'd, it's hard to watch your kid get frustrated, especially when there are tears, especially when they're really uncomfortable or feeling like they're stupid. You know, you just want to fix that. And, and sometimes we, ha- we have to step back and remember that those are really important moments for them. Do you think as an educator 
that our current – our education system might ingrain a fear of failure. You know, we're constantly in this pressure of grades, of success, of passing tests. Is, oh, is that part of it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I've written about the fact that, you know, in the in the book I quote a specific situation in which a student of mine who previously had been just one of the most engaged and enthusiastic students, someone who loved to learn, admitted in a paper that she was so obsessed with the idea of being perfect and so worried about being seen as anything other than, you know, effortlessly perfect that she had completely lost her enjoyment of learning. That was mm. gone. And, uh, and that was just devastating to, for me to hear. Well, and learning is directly tied to failure. Yeah, you have to fail, really, yeah, right? Absolutely. And and the the other thing we have to be able to do there's this fantastic concept um, that you know educators talk about called desirable difficulties, and um, it means that you know something it's it's a good difficulty level. It's just frustrating enough that a kid has to sort of push through and learn through a little bit of challenge. And it's one of the most effective teaching tools we have. And if you know, if we're constantly giving kids, you know, instructions about, you know, here's the next step, sweetie, here's how you do it, you don't have to struggle at all, then we don't get to use that tool. And we need kids that can, you know, get a little frustrated and regroup and maybe read the instructions again and then say to themselves, you know, yeah, I, I think I can figure this out. And kids that can't do that are a lot less teachable. Hmm. Now, what, what do you think leads to the difference between those that can do it and those that can't? You know, I, I, I think a lot of it, some of it comes down to temperament, clearly. Um, but a lot of it comes down to, there's some great research that's in, um, that I quote in Gift of Failure, where when you look at even very, very young children at, at age one, when you have parents who are highly directive and, show, and, you know, don't let the kid get frustrated and push through and sort of are always there with the next thing they need to do, those kids get they they learn to be helpless. It's called learned helplessness. Mm-hmm. And those kids don't develop sort of the emotional wherewithal to sort of sit back and push through. And, and it, when you take those parents away from those kids and then you give them tasks to do, they're a lot less likely to be able to push through on their own because they've never had to develop that skill. They've always had someone there to give them the next uh, the next step. Hmm. So it's it's the kids who actually whose parents are there and supportive but not giving them the next step that are will help redirect a little bit but generally speaking will let the kids struggle for a little bit longer those are the kids that are a, a dream to teach and and learn much more learn a lot more information and learn it more durably hmm. and they come to class and uh, these children that I guess now the big word is resilient, they're resilient mm-hmm. to this stuff, they're able to adapt. And mm-hmm. um, wh- what do you see that it does to their abilities? What are they able to do that uh, that, that sets them aside and, and, and pushes them forward? Well, I'm glad you used the word adapt because I think that word is really important because it's really – their ability, to, kids' ability to positively adapt to failure, not, you know, to not curl up in a ball and weep and, and think of themselves as stupid or, you know, the kids who don't just freak out and assume and take the failures personally, <clears throat> the kids who say, okay, what did I get wrong? What do I need to fix for next time? Those are the kids who are going to do well over the long term. And I talk, um, when I go around to schools, I talk about the kids that, you know, sometimes I'll give them 
constructive criticism on their writing or something. And occasionally kids will just shut down and not hear me because that is so challenging for them to hear. It's, it, they take it very personally. They think it's a personal failure. Um, and the problem is, is when they don't, when they're not able to f- to process constructive criticism and feedback, they can't ever incorporate that into their writing, their math, or whatever it is they're doing. So it's the kids that can listen and say, oh, okay, I see how I can improve, and then actually incorporate that into their, into their learning. And, and, you know, I know plenty of adults that aren't able to hear <laughs> negative feedback. It freaks them out. No, um, exactly. And, yeah, that, that's sort of the real key to success is positive adaptation to mistakes and failures. Is, um, I guess, are we born this way, do you sense? Are we conditioned? Is it our parenting? I mean, you've alluded to that a little bit, mm-hmm. that uh, to, to um, I guess, highly directive of a type of parent might mm-hmm. oppress us a little bit and not have us not learn it. But it seems there, like sensitive people, too, might struggle more. There is a, temper, there is a the temperament, temperament element to it. But research, there's some really famous research on rats that shows very specifically um, about how clearly learned helplessness works. You know, if you take control away from an adolescent rat and, and hurt it, um, it learns that it has no control over um, stopping that pain. And when, you, when it gets to be an adult and you hurt it, it will do nothing to stop the pain, whereas rats, uh, the adolescent rats that have ha- been given the ability to stop little shocks that they're being given to stop the pain will stop the pain mm. as adults. So, and there's, you know, there's all kinds of cool research on, you know, for example, kids who lived during the Depression and were old enough to get a job and make a small contribution to their families as opposed to younger kids who couldn't do that the the kids who were able to make a small contribution to gain control in some way had much fewer mental health issues when they grew up than the kids who were not able to take control of the situation so giving kids more autonomy giving them some control over the things they do and their learning um, and how they do it and where they do it, that's going to be the key to sort of interrupting that cycle of learned helplessness. Yeah, I guess a lot of it is just about their ability to control it. And we do this in business too, which is maybe why we struggle at work and have a lot of people with learned helplessness at Mm -hmm. work because we tell them what they have to do Mm -hmm. and we tell them how they have to do it and when it's got to be done by Yeah, and I give the example in my talks, I explain to parents, I say, look, picture if you've been doing a job with a boss that trusts you for ages and you've been autonomous and you've had all this freedom to sort of do it the way you see fit and a new boss comes in that, you know, really wants to put his mark on, you know, on your, on the work and says, you know, for the next couple weeks, I'm going to need for you to pass everything by me and I want to see everything that you put out there. You feel resentful. You push back against that and it makes you less motivated from inside, less intrinsically motivated to do that work because you're feeling controlled. And that's the same thing that we see in kids. And, you know, anyone who's ever read Dan Pink's Drive or watched Dan Pink's TED Talk about what's in Drive understands that, you know, extrinsic motivators like grades or, you know, short-term incentives or, you know, bribing kids for their grades, that kind of stuff, um, those don't work over the long term to get kids excited about learning. Yeah. It's driven, though, it seems like by like this fear of parents um, thinking their child is like in pain. And how how do you get the fear out of the parent's heart? You know, 
the, I always like to say that at, at a certain point, you have to think about your long-term goals for your children over your short-term sort of feeling better about yourself for alleviating that pain. Um, I talk in the book about a day that my my son, who was having organizational issues, left his homework at home. And, you know, he'd been getting in trouble for his organizational stuff, and we'd been working on it, but, you know, clearly we weren't there yet. And if I had just delivered that homework to him at school, he would have been able to go out to recess. He wouldn't have had this whole conflict with the teacher. Um, I would have felt so good about it. I would have been able to, like, say, oh, yeah, I was a good mom today. But I didn't take it. And what ended up happening was he had to have a meeting with the teacher in which the teacher said, look, this is it. time is up on this. You have to figure out a system. And that was the day he actually came up with a really effective system that has worked for three years since that day. Mm. Um, and if I had taken that homework that day, it would have short-circuited that entire process. Right. You know, I would have taught him, oh, you know, you don't really need to come up with any kind of system because never mind, the homework will just show up for you. Is it, is it, but you would have looked better. Oh, yeah. Because then you wouldn't be, you wouldn't as an educator have to go talk to another educator about (laughs) how your child doesn't have a system yet. Oh, yeah. No, we're still, you know, this is still something, you know, especially when you have kids in middle school. Yeah. Middle school, the entire time, I have one in middle school now and one in high school, Middle school, as I call it in the book, is prime time for failure. It is the time when we give kids more than they can handle and then teach them how to handle it. And that's, it, the, it's so important that that's why there are schools out there that have finally put their foot down and said, no, we are not going to let you deliver things to your kids that they forgot anymore. There's no drop-offs after your kids are here for the day because part of our job as teachers, especially in middle school, is to help kids come up with systems that will help them feel the consequences of their mistakes and learn how to do better next time. Mm, I love that. <laughs> I'm so glad. That is such a great idea. Like, I mean, well, now it's hard, too, because your kids have phones. So they'll text you like, I'm going to die if I don't. I forgot <laughs> yeah, my lunch. A headmaster recently asked me specifically, said, you know, I don't know what to do about parents who are texting their kids constantly during the school day. And I said, well... You know, because it is such a distraction to the kids. And I said, well, you could tell the parents that if they wouldn't call and have the kid physically taken out of class to please not text, because it is still that disruptive. Even if it's just the phone buzzing in their pocket, it removes the kids mentally from class. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's a major problem when they're constantly in touch with, uh, with the world while they're in class. Mm. We are talking on the phone right now with Jessica Leahy, and she is the author of the book, The Gift of Failure, How the Best Parents Learn to Let Go So Their Children Can Succeed. She joins us now to talk more about what we can be doing as parents to uh, facilitate, or at least not stop, uh, the failure, um, some of the failures of our children. Do we, do we just let our kids fail? Uh, do we need to, you know, choose wisely the failures? Or do we just yeah. let life teach? You know, I think what you need to do is, is, especially with older kids, is say, look, um, there's all this research that shows that if I give you a little more control over your life, especially your life around school, that you'll be more motivated yourself to learn. And so I've, I've been doing this wrong, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and give you more control. But before I do that, here are my really, really clear expectations for what I expect from you. You know, so for example, homework will get done to the best of your ability and it'll get handed in. And then if 
you're not if you don't do that here are what the really clear expectation or really clear consequences are going to be and hopefully they're consequences that actually flow from the thing itself like mm. natural consequences so you know in our family it's if you're not getting your work in then you're responsible for setting up the meeting with the teacher and with us and then you lead the meeting and we talk about strategies for how you'll ch- turn that around um and then you know and then sort of give your kids just especially you have to meet your kids where they are some kids are going to need more help from you and than others but start just pulling back um let your sort of alarm bells for when things are getting just so urgent and so uh, you know when you get freaked out about you know this homework assignment back off just a little bit and give your kids a little bit more faith because every time we step in for them and and take over something or tell them that we'll just help them out or do it for them what we're really telling them is that we don't trust them and we don't think they're competent enough to do it themselves and if you show trust they, they um, at first it seems like with my children they'd be mm-hmm. emboldened by this. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, great, fine, sure. Yeah. But the reality is they're going to get bit, right? Yeah, oh, absolutely. And, and it's it's fine to get bit because the the principle I love is they have to have ownership, right? Yep. No no buy in. Yep. Um, then they're then they're, no participation in the process. They're not going to yep. buy into it. So. Yeah. The, I like the idea too of just knowing they're going to f- fail a little mm-hmm. bit, but express express the trust and know that you're really growing a skill here, an ability. Right. Well, and you know, for example, I was talking to a, a, a school counselor recently who was trying to help some parents understand why it was so important that her kid get a zero on a paper that he had plagiarized. The parents were livid. Um, did not want him to get this fit, this zero on this paper. They said it was going to harm his grade. And, you know, this is a kid who wanted to grow up to be a scientist, a doctor. And this is a kid who needs to learn that there are consequences for plagiarizing because it's either a zero on a paper now or lose your entire career when you're in your 20s. You know, I would certainly pick the zero on the paper now. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And part of this, I guess, too, is you got to be smart enough as a parent um, to anticipate possible you know situations like if if a con and and be able to live it. So if they make a consequence that well, fine. This is what we do with our kids. If if my grades aren't better by Monday, then just take my phone. And yeah. okay, great. If that's what, all right. But yeah. and how long will we take the phone for? And yeah. they'll fail. And and when they fail, they'll learn. But yeah. I've got to be strong enough and remember and follow through and allow it to happen. Yeah, and, and getting kids on board, especially if you're talking to them, you say, look, if, if this thing is happening, what do you think the consequences should exactly. be? And, you know, it's sort of, I always take it back to, you know, when you have a toddler, you don't say, would you like to wear a hat today? You say, would you like to wear the red hat or the blue hat? But even just giving a tiny bit of autonomy um, makes a huge difference. And when you were talking about trust, you know, I just wanted to interject that there's really clear research that shows that Kids who are more controlled by their parents, who feel like their parents are extremely controlling, are a lot more likely to lie to Mm. their parents. Mm. So if we'd like honesty from our children, then we have to show a little bit more faith in them. I love that. Yeah, and you'll get more more, uh, validation and trust from them. 
Yeah, I mean, and there's, you know, there's ups and downs, and things will go great for a little while, and you'll have a honeymoon period, and then things will fall apart. Exactly. But then that's the perfect time to talk about positive adaptation to failure. And when I say things will fall apart, I mean failing grades. I mean, like, bad stuff. But those are all important learning experiences. And I think parents conveniently forget some of the huge mistakes they made in their lives that they learned a lot from. And it's important, I guess, to be the parent that is a, a safety net that can still mm-hmm. catch them uh, you know, after they've hit the ground and the consequences have shattered them, then be there. Well, and make it really, really clear that we love them yeah, no um, matter what, not just based on their performance. Because I think parents don't realize it, but when their kid comes home with a failing grade and you respond with silence as opposed to, you know, the effusive praise you give when they come home with the A, that silence in response to a failing grade, that is withdrawal of love based on performance. Mm. And it's one of the most harmful things we do to children emotionally and I, I don't we don't mean it that way that's certainly not what we mean to do but that's what kids feel yeah, yeah. so the love has to always be present yeah and the support that's why you know the term for what i'm advocating for is autonomy supportive not you know bye kid you're on your own i'm leaving and good luck <laughs> yeah right you're there you're supportive but what you're supporting is their autonomy. You're supporting their ability to make decisions about how they're going to get something done and, and, uh, and how they're going to get there. And a lot of that is really important to their development of, you know, what are so-called executive functions, organization, and time management. Um, all of that's really important to how they learn – that they learn how to do that over time. I mean that is different, isn't it, than abandonment? <laughs> and, and almost yeah. this, and kind of with a chip on your shoulder. Oh, lie. Okay. Well, yeah, yeah. yeah watch. The, yeah, you're gonna. Yeah, you're gonna fail. Well, and and people have accused me of you know sort of this laissez-faire parenting thing. But honestly, I I don't think I've ever been a. I, this is the most strict I've ever been in terms of yeah. When I lay down really really clear expectations and I tell you what the consequences are going to be, I am a bad parent if I do not follow through with those consequences. And you know when I'm really clear with my kids about that. You know, I think we don't give kids enough uh, credit for being able to understand that kind of logic. Mm. I wonder, too, if uh, – so it's one thing. It's a parenting issue, but it might also be a teaching issue and a, mm-hmm. and a system issue where right. our schools are trying to get, you know, hundreds of thousands of people through. Absolutely. And any anomaly is 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 difficult. So let's just all yeah. – just do it. Do it this way. Everybody do it this way. Well, and the parents also, you know, parents tell me all the time, yeah, I really would like to back off and give my kid more autonomy. I just don't want to do, be the first one to do it because then the school is going to think I'm a negligent parent or my kid is going to be the only one to not have me checking on their grades 20 times a day. Um, and I get that. And at the same time, also schools are set up to reward kids by giving them extrinsic rewards like grades, points, extra credit points, honors, all of that kind of stuff. And you know, the problem is is that what's getting lost in that is the fact that the process is what's more important than the actual product. The learning is more important than the grades. And yet what we do is we reward the grades. We don't reward the learning. And that's, that's incredibly uh, damaging to kids and, and just tends to set them up to be more and more oriented toward the product and not the process of learning. Oh, wow. Yeah, because the learning will carry them – to better results the rest of their life, the grades won't always do that. Right. And and the nice thing is, you know, home should be the one place where their goals should be more important than their grades. And so if we can, 
you know, kids don't need to hear you say one more time how important their grades are. They know that. They hear it from everyone all day long. So if we could make home be the one place where their personal goals and their what they're learning is actually stressed as important, um, that would go a long way to sort of giving them one safe harbor from the intense pressure of constantly being oriented towards grades. Mm. So good. Talk to me, uh, if you had to like wrap it up, Jessica, mm-hmm. in one, just one thing, mm-hmm. I call it the one thing that is the thing that makes the most difference yeah. for all of us as parents to start. Yeah. What's the one thing we should do? Parenting is a long haul job. It is not about parenting for the moment. And in those moments when you're feeling like things are just urgent and crazy and you need to get a little nuts and hover a little too close, remember that your job over the long haul is to make it so they don't need us anymore. And as upsetting as that is for me as a mom, that's our job is to not be necessary. And we need to make kids feel competent so that they can get there on their own. Yeah, work yourself out of a job. Yep. Then they'll come back. Then, then they'll need you, but they'll bring a grandchild. Yep, and they won't be living on your couch. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Jessica Leahy, great stuff, my friend. That's awesome. The Gift of Failure is the name of the book. And uh, get the, the full name, just so you know. The Gift of Failure, How the Best Parents Learn to Let Go So Their Children Can Succeed. A great resource for all of us. You can get more information about Jessica on her website, jessicalehy.com. JessicaLahey.com. Appreciate it, Jessica. Thank you, and keep up the great work. For the rest of us, folks, it's time to start parenting. And remember, we've got to make it so that they don't need us anymore. You're going to work yourself out of a job. Isn't that cool? Scary sometimes. Does that bother you? If it does, maybe that's the reason you don't let them fail. Then they have to live with you forever. We'll take a break, my friends. We'll be right back. Stick with us, learning how to uh, lead those we love most. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the program. See, failure is good, and uh, nobody does it better than we do right here on the Matt Townsend Show. I thought you were going to say Jeff Simpson. No way. Have you ever failed? Constantly. Never seen it. Let's uh, turn to the empty news uh, with uh, Jeff Simpson, our empty news anchor. The empty news team. First on the scene. Fifth on facts. Now, this is this is pretty sad. It kind of shatters your faith in humanity a little bit. What? Did you happen to have any of your... Uh, Packages stolen no. over the holidays. No, thank heavens. No. Me neither. I did have a mouse. Yeah, you did have a mouse that stole a really good chocolate loaf. I know we had to throw it out. Mm, it's a yeah. bummer. Uh, so there's a UPS employee mm-hmm. who delivered an iPhone to a Florida home. You know, one of the new iPhone X's yeah. or 10? Yeah, X10. Are you calling it 10 or X? I'm calling it X. Okay. But I don't know. I mean, I just, you know just kind of rebellious like that. So I guess he saw that uh, he was delivering an iPhone and decided, I think I might want that. <laughs> so two hours later, he returns to the home and shoves it in his shirt. Come on. Come Takes on. Takes off. Yeah, so he's 47, Jason Moan of St. Petersburg, and uh, he uh, – <laughs> 
both the delivery and the theft were caught on two home security yeah. cameras. You're going to get caught now. I, I, I'm thinking if you're spending the money on an iPhone 10, you probably have the money for one of those security cameras. <laughs> so uh, the iPhone was found the next day by a UPS investigator inside Moan's work area next to his belongings. Oh, come on, Moan! I don't think he's going to work there anymore. No, I think Moan just lost his job, too. If anybody needs a handy Moan. Was that you moaning yeah. his name? Mm-hmm. So uh, here's another fun one. Have you ever heard of those uh, those police or those gun buyback programs that oh, yeah. the police will do? So uh, instead there of was... committing a crime with the gun or letting it somebody sure. you know, letting somebody yeah. else get it, bring it to us. We'll buy it back from you. We'll they give you got a fair a, price. They got a bazooka. Oh boy! At a buyback program. So this was Saturday oh, wow. during the the police department's annual gun buyback event, and. Uh, there are, people are offered $100 a piece for handguns and $200 for assault weapons. Yes, somebody showed up with yeah. a bazooka. And so what am I going to get for the bazooka? And uh, there, unfortunately, we don't know how much this person was given for that bazooka. Well, I mean, you don't get more for a bazooka than you do a handgun, right? I mean, just because it's not? bigger, more destructive. I would think you would get more. Well, but they're not – aren't they just giving you some money for it because you obviously don't care about the gun? But clearly there's a distinction between handguns and assault weapons, Is $100 versus $200. OK, yeah. So I'm guessing maybe $300? Well, if we're going by its deadly nature, it should be more like 3000 But that's not something that they get yeah. back. So yeah, maybe it's more than that. Boy. I wonder how much they'd give me if I went in there with like a carton of Bazooka Joe gum. Nothing. Really? No, they just laugh you out of there. No, but they love those funny comics. No, the, no. the comics are the best part. Nope. They'd laugh you out of there. And they're probably going to – I mean eventually they're going to start asking questions like, so where did you get the bazooka? Mm. I mean then you – then, you know, then questions will be asked. I think, I think part of the thing is no questions asked. That's what they say until you bring in a bazooka. That, look, people can bring any gun. We don't care. We don't ask questions. What about a bazooka? I think if I brought in Bazooka Joe gum, they'd probably start asking some questions. Oh, yeah. Then they'd just put you in that special room. You know, that one room. Anyway, uh, so be careful. Uh, if, you, if you don't want your gun, go to these buybacks. They'll, you'll get some cash for your gun and your bazooka. And maybe if you're lucky, they'll send you home with some Bazooka Joe. I doubt it. We'll continue the journey, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to BYU Radio. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here, hour number three of the program. By the way, if you uh, didn't know it, you can go back and um, look into our archives. Go to iTunes, go to TuneIn, go to BYURadio.org, or just ask your Amazon Echo device, we'll call her Belexa, to look up the Matt Townsend Show podcast. Why can you say the product but not the product's Name because if you Identity. say the name, it will start to ignite Belexas oh, all over the world. Oh, that's true. So we don't want to cause problems for you. 
but it is kind of fun to say. So we have the new, we have the uh, the Google, yeah, we whatever have that's one called. Of those too. It's called a home. We call it the Google hockey puck. And do you have to say, hey, Google, for yes. everything? So it works. Yeah. Uh, hey, Google. Oh, see, I just set three of them off right there. What if you forgot? Like, what, if, you, what if it's just like, hey, you? Nope. Won't work. No, it's trying to teach you manners, too, for heaven's sakes. You've Google, Google Home, it's a... It's a, a personal assistant, too. It seems kind of vain. It is. We are so vain. I mean, you can just look at me. You can look me in the eye and start talking to me. You don't need to say my name hey, every Google. time. Yeah. Well, should we start doing that? Hey, say, Jeff. Hey, say my name every time you address me. Say my name. Doesn't this remind you of a song? <laughs> every phrase you're giving us reminds say me of my a song. Name, Say my name. Say my name. When no one is around you. I think something like that. Yeah. Let's just move on. Hey, uh, the bomb cyclone blasts the East Coast. They're calling it the bomb cyclone, which not a great name. We, we're trying to come up with others like the chili blizzard, chiz, the chizzard, the chili blizzard, chil, the hizzard, the chill chizzard. So um, but boy, oh boy, is it taking a toll. Twelve people have already died because of this storm that's hitting the Northeast, blasting them. Uh, whiteouts taking place on Long Island, all the way down, I think, into the Carolina, South Carolina. Is it moving up the coast? It's crazy what's going on. South Carolina has snow on the ground. And you brought up the point, too, that, you know, California's been having these horrible, horrible fires. Yeah. And yet they've lost fewer people in weeks than than they have in in days. And what, a billion dollars probably, or millions, hundreds of millions of dollars in damages— which there will be damages because of the storm, but death. Oh, yeah. And in fact, our hero of the day story, it's incredible. Two workers, cable workers, find a little toddler running around without clothes on in the middle of the storm. Unbelievable what's happening. So uh, again, watch out. If you're in the East Coast, just hunker down, turn on your fire, make sure there's enough air getting into the room. A lot of people yes, are probably asphyxiated and uh, not good, not good times, but uh, something to watch out for. Um, let's do this. Let's get to the headlines with Terry South, see what else is going on in the world. Uh, new just apparently in the last little while here. I'm trying to sort my stories. President Trump's lawyer reportedly has demanded that Henry Holt and Company Incorporated and author Michael Wolff stop publication of the soon-to-be-released book about the chaotic first year of Trump's presidency. Can you just do that? I guess you can no. demand it. Well, he's the president. Yeah. There, there was a point, uh, part, part of in this book, there's one of the uh, aides that was talking with Michael Wolff, and he came and said, he goes, my job at one point, I had to go in and explain the Constitution to the president. We got to about the Fourth Amendment, and he told me to stop. He just couldn't do this anymore. I've had enough! So, I mean, this is, yeah. Wow. He feels like he can, you know. So he's trying to stop the in, actual in a letter on In a letter on Trump's behalf, lawyer Charles Harder demanded the author and publishing house cease and desist from any further publication, release, or dissemination of the book Fire and Fury, according to a copy of the letter obtained by ABC News. The book, which is set to be released Tuesday, includes stunning comments from number a number of aides, including former White House chief strategist Steve Bannon. Bannon wow. called it treasonous and unpatriotic that Trump's son, Donald Trump Jr., and son-in-law Jared Kushner, along with Trump campaign manager 
Paul Manafort met with uh, Russian representatives in June yeah. 2016 it's from a- Towers. That's some of the allegations they don't like, and it just goes on from there. Oh, boy. Um, I, you know, I, he's probably used to having more power yeah. to threaten lawsuits, but now you're in the public area, right? So, I mean, how many books have been written about the Clintons? Right. Just watch. Here it comes. Here we go. <laughs> uh, more President Trump yesterday disbanded his voter fraud commission, known as the Presidential Advisory Commission on Election Integrity, citing states' lack of cooperation with the investigation. If you remember, they yeah. asked every state to send all their voter records, and a majority of states went, no. Yeah. There's privacy concerns, and why do you want this states information? have rights. and But it's because, because he claimed that he would have won... The popular the vote. The popular vote if they had just counted. Well, there was like two to three million fraudulent votes yeah. that were cast. Which they, find they've them. yet been able to find those. So despite substantial evidence of voter fraud, many states have refused to provide the presidential committee uh, on election integrity with basic information relevant to its inquiry, the president said in a statement, rather than engage in endless legal battles at taxpayer expense, today I sign an executive order to dissolve the commission. Okay. And then he wants... Uh, he was talking today, I think, on Twitter about enhancing voter ID laws. So that'll fix it. Yeah, back to the original problem of, yeah, let's, can't everyone just vote? I don't know. Washington Attorney General, uh, Bob, Washington State Attorney General Bob Ferguson announced Wednesday that the state is suing Motel 6 oh, for boy. allegedly divulging the personal information from more than 9,000 guests to immigration and customs enforcement officials. ICE. Ice, ice, baby. You know, so they're, they're suing him because of that. Mm-hmm. Shouldn't they really be complaining about the duvet? No, they should be complaining <laughs> about the fact that it's not $6 a night. Yeah, what happened? Isn't that why that? it was called Motel 6 originally? I thought it was Motel. Anyway. I thought it was closed on Sunday. That's why they called it I didn't it know it was the number oh. six. I thought it was I'm not six. even sure if that was that. So Ferguson, the attorney general on Wednesday, called the motel chain's actions, which included the disclosure of names, birth dates, and license plate numbers, oh, disturbing wow. and unlawful. Motel 6 previously said it would stop sharing the information with federal authorities in Arizona. And in Washington, they have not stopped that. So he's suing them to make them stop mm. turning wow. people over to ICE. Well, Because the only way they would know... To turn someone over would be some test. I guess. Do they look illegal? I don't know. Is that it, like what they're thinking? Like, oh, I don't know. Because so, if you walk in and pay cash, there's no ID. They, mm, I don't know. Boy. Yeah. It's a very weird situation. Uh, as banks and mainstream investors embrace Bitcoin, helping fuel the heady gains of the world's best-known cryptocurrency in 2017, some of its early adopters, criminals, have started banking elsewhere. This according to Bloomberg News. The problem for the criminals, uh, criminal underground is that Bitcoin, the blockchain, uh, or the transaction history for each virtual coin is traceable, allowing law enforcement and researchers to follow the cryptocurrency money from yeah. source to source to source, yeah. and you can see where the criminality is happening. Okay. So it's, it's the perfect way to track and catch Euro- crypto thefts. Europol, the European Union police force, warned three months ago that other cryptocurrencies such as Monero, Eurethrium, and Zcash, I know it was pretty close, wasn't it, are gaining <laughs> uh, popularity with the digital underground. Isn't that, that's the bug you had last week. Oh, yeah. Ugh. Hurt. So they're saying the so-called privacy uh, coins, you are private Privacy coins used in, in, encryption and other tools to obscure the sender and receiver in online transactions, making those other coin coinage yeah. more 
attractive to criminals. So it's the record keeping of Bitcoin that now makes it it's too mainstream for for it's, criminals yeah. in general. And yeah. finally, there's even more reason to get out of your, your your get your daily fix of leafy vegetables. New research shows that eating a salad a day may help your brain be healthy. Really? The study published in Neurology, the Journal of American Academics of Neurology, found that people who ate at least one serving of green leafy vegetables per day had a slower rate of decline on tests involving memory and thinking skills than people who never or rarely ate these vegetables. So eat your salads. Yeah. The research found that those who ate mostly leafy greens tested the equivalent of 11 years younger on measures of mental function compared to those who ate the least. Seriously. Mm. So eat your vegetables, you'll be younger mentally. I'm telling you, over the holiday, we had a coupon to go to a salad bar. Really? And we took all of our kids to the salad bar. They, honestly, I've never seen them more happy about a meal. Well, because don't they serve bacon at the salad bar? They all had a really healthy salad. I think it's the pudding. For some reason, there's always pudding at the salad bar. That's not pudding. (laughs) That's salad dressing gone bad. Yeah, that ain't pudding, my friend. But it's so it tells you these kids are they're hankering, they're hankering for a salad for these vegetables. Whenever we go to a pizza buffet, we always try to make a stop to the salad bar. Well, try to be responsible. Terry's shaking his head. The point of the buffet is to eat the pizza. You waste the time and space. You're wasting your money, really. Actually, you're wasting space with the pizza because all that bread is just going to expand and you get fuller quicker. That's the point of the pizza buffet, to eat the pizza. Actually, I thought the point was to just not cook that night. Well, that too. Uh, I did an all-you-can-eat steakhouse. Well, it was a steakhouse that had an all-you-can-eat yeah, option, right? No, talk about this because this is what we're teaching you now not what, what not to do. I, I accomplished, we'll put it that way, or conquered 11 and a half steaks. Yeah. They come out. They try to get you, right? They, you, you, I want the all-you-can-eat You want some bread? Here's contest. some bread. So they bring you some bread. Lots of bread. They bring you some salad. Uh-huh. I just pushed it all away and yeah. sat there quietly until my first steak arrived. Bring me the steak. Wow. You had purpose when you sat down. I was down. focused. This I'm is here right, for the stake. This, you got to hear the story, Jeff. This is right before he went into the coma. Oh, yeah. yeah it was a couple hours after this. He went into uh, a – he got the meat sweats. Yes. And by the way, uh, I heard over the Christmas that you got, you got a beautiful set of meat sweats. I didn't get a set. I, I actually put the story over here, and now I have to find it in the stack that you have ever-growing next to Do you have a picture here. of it? I it's, have a stack of – Do you well, like Arby's? Isn't Lady, Lady – the meat sweats, isn't that by Lady Gaga? Yeah. No. Didn't That's she do another, the meat pants? She, she did a meat. Yeah, More that, of a formal okay. ball, ball a, yeah, gown. Hers yeah. is a, yeah, a meat but formal Arby's gown. for the holiday season, it said. So this may be over, this this uh, promotional thing. But they have uh, their sweats. They have meat-printed sweatpants and sweatshirts. So they have mm. graphics of random meat Like if you products. imagine an Arby's uh, roast beef oh, sandwich yeah. that has been yeah. thinly cut and sliced – to perfection. Now you can wear that image. It's like a meat pattern on the yeah. sweats. It's 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 like camo, but it's called hamo. It says these are wearable. 
Right. They better be. They're not. They weren't for sale. Only yeah. be gifted to lucky fans. <laughs> uh, sweat the sweat figure image of the different kinds of meats that Arby puts on his sandwiches, like roast beef, ham, turkey, chicken. The pockets and hood both have bacon patterns on the inside. Oh wow! And there is an expandable waistline technology for post meal comfort. Hold on, a waistline technology. That's what they're calling mm. it. Yeah, they call that a drawstring. So they. <laughs> There a limited number of select customers were giving these for free during the holidays, so their promotion's over. Um, <laughs> I, tell you, I tell you what, though. When the zombie apocalypse hits, that's the last outfit you want to be wearing. Oh, yeah. They also had a new sandwich they put out called the Arbonator. Oh, really? Mm. Yes, it's uh, whatever kind of sandwich it is stuffed with curly fries. Ooh. Ooh, yeah. Well, shouldn't that be the Curlinator? You got roast beef, cheddar, cheese sauce, Arby sauce, horsey sauce, a pile of seasoned mm. fries right on top. And nothing horsey would be... sauce? Oh, I love horsey sauce. It's like horseradish. Is it's... it like glue? No. Sort of. Well, it... It, that, that's the functionality of the sandwich, yeah. yeah. It's Elmer's horsey sauce. And then it goes through the story, goes and recaps uh, stovetop stuffing with their Thanksgiving dinner pants. Yeah. KFC had a whole line of apparel and accessories recently added to the new Christmas sweater and several t-shirts to its collection. So there's food-related clothing, if now, you'd like to purchase. Okay, now seriously. Um... Pizza Hut had a pizza parka. So just imagine, you know, you put the kids to bed. Then you get the meat sweats on. And you go upstairs and you say you, you say to your spouse, hey, I'm just going to go slip into something a little more comfortable. <laughs> you go up, you get your meat sweats on. Roast beef flavor, yes. Yeah. Oh, there we go. You slick your hair back. This is Matt's house on the weekend, right? You here. throw on a little <laughs> cologne, maybe a little musk. Mm, yeah. Meat musk. And then you, you come down... Honestly, when you walk out in your meat sweats... Or just like a dab of barbecue sauce behind your ear. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> or honey mustard if you're still inclined. Right, sure. Or a little horsey sauce. Could be. Do you really think... Is there really a man on this earth that thinks that his wife is going to think, Oh, wow. <laughs> Look at that. Whoa. Some some women really love bacon. Yeah, they really love Arby's yeah, but it's meat. Not. It's not bacon, and it's not Arby's meat. It's just your husband dressed like a sandwich. Not attractive. Women like sandwiches. Come on. No. No. It. Uh, no. <laughs> it's not. It's not how Matt, this is supposed to work. Your wife doesn't like sandwiches. No, she loves it. Does she really? She won't find me attractive in a sandwich. Oh, okay. You're right. In a meat. Not even the sandwich. In yeah, just you're dressed up meat. as like meat sweats. Yeah. She'll find you more attractive in a meat outfit than a salad outfit, for sure. But look at this picture, Matt. Look how comfortable this individual is in his meat sweats. <laughs> He's even got that sort of like model pose with his face. Yeah. They, they really the do just look like camo. It looks like, it's, right. looks like meat mo. Meat mo. Look Meat at mo. look at the comfortable slippers he has on. I have actually I have a pair of those. Yeah, I bet you do. They're fantastic. Um, okay, well that's good news, I, I guess. Yeah. Um, so salads, salads will make you mentally uh, better in mm-hmm. life, and yeah. you'll age slower if you do eat a salad a day, which I do. But salads just which they... means I'm like 24 mentally. All the salads I've been. It's more like 12. I understand. But My wife's explained hungry? this to me. But. I get, if I eat a salad, I'm hungry no. an hour later. I'm fine. Then I get the meat. I get a hankering for a meat sandwich. No. You, you, need, to, you need to fight through that feeling for about two weeks. 
Yeah. And then your body like understands this is the amount of food you're going to be eating. Now. Oh, your your body understands that you will be starving. We're well, starving you. I'm driving down the freeway. There's a restaurant. Mm-hmm. I don't know how widespread this restaurant is, but you see up there and it goes huge portions. Yeah. I ate at this mm. restaurant over the last couple of weeks. It is unreasonably large portions. No, they're huge. It's it's a, huge. It, it, on one level, it's wonderful. On the other level, you're like, this is really like four meals here that I'm eating. And so, and it was covered in gravy. So, so it was all good. No, oh, there was really nothing wrong except for the lack of nutrition, hmm. and the fact that you probably just took all of those years from eating salads, right? You immediately negated every one of them. But I'm back on the back on the what the train, back on the wagon, whatever you want to say, and I'm salad every day. Salad, salad, salad. Amazing. It's good stuff. See, but the stuff we do to salad kind of makes it no longer healthy. Yeah. Right? I like to make a salad soup. You're throwing a ranch <laughs> salad soup. You're throwing bacon and, Matt and likes to have chicken. He mm-hmm. likes to have like a bucket of a bowl of ranch with some lettuce in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's how he eats his salad. I like yeah. it to float freely yeah. right. in my ranch. The hard-boiled eggs, mm. the croutons. Yes. Cheese. Just a little yeah. bit. Just 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 a pinch. Just like an ounce of cheese. And then to stay healthy, you I, like measure to, it. I like to throw you know some shredded carrots on it. That makes me feel like I'm... Look, it's healthy. It's got yeah. carrots. And yeah. you don't have to chew it. It just slides right down. Right. With my Cago ranch. Like the, the omelet I had at this place with huge portions. Yeah. Like in the middle was spinach. Oh, it's healthy. So as I'm eating it, I'm like, oh, healthy. there's spinach. It's healthy. My wife's like, there you go. So. No. Totally. Like our guy yesterday that talked about growing spinach in the Bronx. Right. Totally. It's the same thing. You started talking like Popeye, though, after you ate that. Well, that is the side effect. It's it's listed on the label. That was not a good impression, by the way. Oh, was that Popeye? <laughs> I was trying to figure out who stuck on, who stepped on the duck. Um, anyway, straight ahead, Heather Johnson will be joining us. Hadge, we call her, and we will be talking to her about, of course, our parenting issues. She's a great parenting resource for us and a professor here at Brigham Young University. This is the Matt Townsend Show, doing what we can to help you make your life a little easier. And if anything. Uh, Help you, uh, you know, get through the meat sweats. To the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, as a new year hits, it's time to make some resolutions, or at least to, you know, everyone else is. So to here to help us kind of walk through the process as a parent uh, and creating some parenting resolutions for the new year is Heather Ann Johnson. Heather is a professor here at Brigham Young University and has been an adjunct faculty member for the last 12 years. She's also uh, a contributor on the show, and you can find out more on her website, familyvolley.com. You're soaking in it. You're soaking in it. How are you, Hadge? I'm good. It's good to be here. Good to have you New back. Year. Happy New Year. I know. Same to you. And uh, you sur- you not just survived, you thrived through the holidays. Yeah, we had a good holiday season. I know we were just chatting about it. We keep it pretty low key. That's so, smart. Yeah, I don't, I mean, there's always a transition back into the hustle and bustle of work. And, yeah, got to get to school. And clients and, you know, school starts around yeah. here next week, those types of things. And our kids went back on Wednesday. So, but other than that, we kind of. Yeah. 
I don't know. Let's, it's, it's, let's hang out. Yeah, it's not a bad thing, is it? Yeah, no. All of a sudden, but a lot of times there's this stigma attached to it that it's got to be stressful, it's got to be exhausting, and you're saying in the end it doesn't. It doesn't. And I think that's the only time I feel unease is when all of a sudden I start to think, wait, should I be more, yeah. more stressed? Should why I am feel I not? More, <laughs> why, why is this really okay? And, it, you know, it takes energy and effort a little bit to get there, but it sure is a lot less than when I used to run myself around oh, yeah. in craziness and – well, well that, now so. you kind of get the hang, the hang of it and the, a handle on it. And then I guess somehow if you could create some habits that we hand down to our kids, maybe they'd be less stressed in the future. Yeah. Well, and it applies right to every day. So it's I cool. don't know. I kind of feel like the, as soon as we got control of the holidays, the rest of our year kind of Fell settled. In line. Yeah. We That's realize awesome. you kind of realize what's Do important we, to you. Another time we feel this. Uh, so the holiday creates it. But then the, there's this weird kind of social pressure to be creating – um, resolutions. Yeah. Like you better, you better be uh, planning to be better next year, or you're a loser. Yeah, you better have some goals, right? Do you right. believe? Are you a resolution maker? I'm not. Me neither. I'm I, not so I, much. I do like a plan, but I don't look at it as like resolutions, things I'm going to change. Sure. I or, just like to know what the year, some some goals for the year. Yeah. But for I sure. don't call them. I don't look at it like because I'm I'm going to reevaluate it in a month. Mm-hmm. And we'll do it again. Right. So right. I have one every month. Yeah. So it, we're kind of like that too. I know even my husband, he's always like, I don't I don't really get it. If I want to set a goal, does that mean like if it's March, I have to wait yeah. nine months before? <laughs> There's Darn a little, it. Shoot. Right. Well, I guess I'll procrastinate that. So not so much that we worry about resolution being a change or something different. But with it on everyone's mind, it's kind of a fun way to introduce some things that in parenting in general, we can create new plans for. Yeah. And so whether you set resolutions or not, because like we said, neither of us do. That's I don't I don't wake up January 1 and think, all right, here we go. Here we go. Start my new life. Right. Because December 31st, right. there were already things I was working on just like there is in July. Yeah. And so when we look at this, another thing that's interesting when we look at the word resolution, uh, as I've looked more at it, because a lot of people put focus on on that word, resolution is just determination. It's, right. it's just being determined to do something in a sense. But even more than that, I love kind of where the defini- definitions go, which is deciding a course of action or creating a solution. So if you think about that in parenting, today we're just chatting about things that maybe we can decide to create solutions for, kind of those really common things that maybe aren't fantastic yeah. with our kids that we're going to look at solutions for. Right. See if we can do that a little different. And it doesn't matter if it's January or, again, July or August. They still apply. We want to make sure they're there. And I guess that's that's probably something to get in your kid's head that change is permanent, <clears throat> constant. Improvement, we ought to all, always have our goal. But then we maybe need a process for how we do it. Right. And so we can show them that yeah. by looking at things this way. So there's a couple and we're we're shooting kind of straight today because sometimes we hear these things and it's like, oh, I don't I don't really like that. Yeah. I don't really want to change that. But we're gonna see where we get. So the first resolution or the first thing to be more determined in creating a solution to is to be much more mindful about attachment points with your kids. Yeah, there you go. So if we're looking to start fresh in any way, whether it's today or in six months. Looking for attachment points are really important. Now, we've talked about this a little bit before, but attachment points are essentially those moments, and there's hundreds of them during a day, where children are asking if we see them. That's it. It, it's that, it boils down to that simple. It's do you know that I'm here? Do you get me? Not just do you see my body and that I'm asking for a drink for the 10,000th time. Right. Because really we've missed that attachment point already. If our kids are hitting our leg 10 times and saying, Mom, I need a drink. Mom, I need a drink. We clearly didn't yeah, see yeah. them the first time right. when they said, here I am a four-year-old, totally not able to help myself, and I am parched. Could you help me? <laughs> 
And essentially we said, nope, nope, I, I don't see thirst. Mama's busy. Nope, sorry, I, I can't see that. And so attachment points are the moments when our kids say, do you see me? Do you get me? I'm here. This is why they want to show us a picture that they drew. This is why they want to show us, I don't know, the tower that they built with the blocks yeah. you just gave them for Christmas because they want to know if you actually see them. And I always look at that like it's like a tiny string that you're putting on them and it creates a safe attachment a, to them. A connection. And there will be 12 more today. Mm-hmm. And if we could just keep putting these little healthy attachments on them, then they know they're safe. They know that they're, they've got somebody that's watching them. And yet it also makes them safe enough to go explore the world. It's exactly right. They know that there's always somewhere to the, the path that gets them back. Yeah. But imagine a child that doesn't, isn't sure that their parent sees them. It's exactly right. And so then the, you get fearful. You well, get worried. Right. And the problem with that is and why this is so important to to resolve to is that then they become adults who don't know how to not just do that with their own children, but to do that with spouses, right. to do that with, you know, any relationship that matters. They right. don't know how to see someone. And then like you said, a beautiful analogy to connect those strings that that keep us close. Uh, the great thing too is healthy attachment. And as parents we get this confused. We often hear parents say, Oh, is isn't that so cute? She just won't leave her mom's side, yeah. right? And yeah. that's not the attachment we're looking for. The right. attachment we want is what you've mentioned, where the relationship is so secure and so solidified with those strings that they'll go venture off yeah. because they know full well that we're always still They're sure we're about there. you. Right. So now they can go explore more what they're unsure about. But no, they can always come back to you. Always. And that if the exploration of the unsure doesn't go fantastic – or if it goes great, you're there to hear how great yeah. it was or you're there to help pick up pieces when it didn't go so And you'll great. know instantly because mm-hmm. you're paying attention. Because you're there, right? right? You see them. So there is this space, again, regardless of the time of year, to decide I'm going to be more mindful of those hundred times a day when my children around me are saying, do you see me? Yeah. And it isn't – they're not going to walk up and say, hey, you get me right now. That, no. They are going to say, could I have a drink of water? Will you look at my tower? Could we go for a walk? What do you think about these shoes, mom? Right? My attachment with our older kids now is not that they need help feeding themselves. It's, hey, mom, do these clothes match? Right. Hey, mom, do you like my hair like this? Hey, mom, this happened at school. Are you around to see that I need to discuss it? Yeah, that's huge. So this is a really big deal. Okay, let's do another one. We're going to resolve this year to stop our catchphrases. Hmm. We've got some fancy ones we yes. throw out all the time as parents. A couple in particular we are going to get rid of. No longer do we want to say see, S-E-E. Yeah. It sounds like this. See, aren't you glad that you listened to me? Mm. See, aren't you glad we didn't go? Uh, I'm trying to think what my favorite are that I tried to, to <laughs> avoid, right? Uh, see, didn't it turn out just the way I said it would? Yeah. Really? Look how smart I am. Look how fantastic I am and how stupid you are for not listening See, sooner. yeah. See, Told you so. We're getting rid of that. Right. No one. Think of it as an adult. I I can't stand the people that want to walk around all the time telling me where I screwed up and how great it was that right. they saw it first. No, right. Exactly. So we want that's, – that's a word we're done with. Get rid of it. It puts our children in a position where they resent – the fact that we had the knowledge or the wisdom, which means they're not going to want to listen more next time. Well, and think about why you would ever want to do that. It, it's this weird competition right. you have with your child. Right. And here – and isn't it funny because here I am, what, 40 last year, 
And as a 40 year old, I somehow need to get my four year old's validation yeah. that I, that see, 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 mama knows. See, I knew you needed the umbrella. I told you I was see? smarter than you. Well, I sure as heck hope yeah. I've got some insight on the weather over right. my four year old, right. right? Exactly. But that I need that validation is fairly pathetic. <laughs> uh-huh. By the way, it could also go to, and everyone has that, but it could go back to the need that you had to validate the fact that no one sees you. It's exactly so right. So you have to then compensate and then you become somebody that. Nobody likes. Yeah, and if you mix careful. if you mix that with some pride that we feel disrespected when our children don't jump to our suggestions, yeah, and we can't put that pride aside, we're gonna fill most of our sentences with see, see, yeah. see. There's nothing good about that. What we want to do instead is recognize the situation itself will teach our children. That's right. It will. When our kids end up taking the umbrella and it rains and they have it and put it up at recess and go. Man, I'm glad I have an umbrella and that kid does like this is good. I got what I need here. Yeah. I don't need to remind them I'm the one that told them to take it. They get it all on their own. So true. So let the experience teach. The next catchphrase that we don't have space for anymore is when we tell our children, don't worry or don't cry. Mm-hmm. Right? All the time. Hey, don't worry, it'll be fine. Don't cry, jump up, it's no big deal. Don't cry, it's you know, it'll get better. Don't cry. They don't matter anyway. Don't act like a baby. Don't act like a baby. Don't worry. All these things clump together. When we say these things, we instantly tell our kids not to trust their own emotions. Mm -hmm. We can't do that. If there's anything that our society is struggling with now and continues to, it's an ability to manage emotions across the board regardless of relationships. And so when we do have emotions that are trying to give us warning signs that there are feelings and we tell our kids to ignore them – We've now told them they can't trust themselves. Now, when I talk to parents about things like that or even in relationships, they always say, well, I don't want my kid to be a sissy. I don't want to make a big deal about things that aren't. Or, you know, friends will come and go. How do they then experience those things? And so when you're working with your children and you're weeding out a don't worry, don't cry catchphrase mentality – We want them to instead recognize the emotion and then work with them with it. It's not that you can't feel it. It's that you've got to know what to do with it when you do feel it. Not to not feel it, but to feel it and then understand it. Right. And so, yeah, let's feel worry. But that doesn't mean you scream at me. Right. Right. Okay. Let's feel hurt. That doesn't mean we, you know, knock on everybody's door and say, "Today I got hurt." We we got to right. know what to do with these things, or we we train them to become adults who one don't know what the feelings are or what they mean and don't know how to manage yeah, them. That's so, so no true. more saying "see." We're, we're see. Yeah. Uh, that's no good. And the "don't worry, don't cry." We're done with. So what we're going to get rid of those. What about hey? Don't make me pull over. Yeah. <laughs> how about that one? Don't you love? So maybe we should throw that in there. Yeah. We're going to resolve no more empty threats. Okay. Right? Yeah, darn it. The whole like yeah. insult lake when we live in Provo. Yeah. Yeah. So for those of you, 45 minutes apart, drive, yeah. when my husband yells, hey, if you don't knock it off, I'm going to pull over. You're going to walk home. And our kids in the back are like, yeah, sure. <laughs> come on. Mom would Yo, never let us walk All 45 minutes. You're, you're... We would get mugged, dad. <laughs> in fact, our daughter one time, my husband, those I shouldn't even. He those used to be a part of his parenting a little bit more. because yeah. He grew up with that. It's very rare. He would say something like that now. But he said something like that one time. And I think it was our eight year old at the time. She goes, yeah, right. In all this traffic from the back. Seat. Come on. And yeah. he was like, yeah, OK. So not in all this. traffic." <laughs> OK. Smart kids. We ready for another one? Yeah. Do you have time for another? Yeah. OK. Next resolution. We are going to resolve to get our kids involved. In what? In everything. OK. Cool. But now, not too but much. No, we're not talking about extracurricular activities. Yeah. 
we are talking about the chemistry of our own families. Oh, cool. In our own homes. Here's the problem. We're right now in the heat of this situation where when kids are not involved in their own families, right? My husband always says teamwork makes the dream work. Yeah. Right? We hear it all the time. When they're not part of a family team, parents feel resentment. It's this constant, especially with women. I'm doing it all. I take care of it all. I plan it all. No one ever helps. Right. So now we've got some always and some nevers that aren't true, that mm-hmm. are killing any ability to see the reality of life. And on the flip side, we've got kids who become very, very entitled. So it's time to get kids involved. They Let need to be involved learn. in housework. Let them work. They need to be in, and it's not just the miserable things. No. We think involved, and it's like, great. Now I've got little minions who are going right. to help with dishes and laundry and making beds. No, we're going to get them involved in planning family vacations, in what we're going to do on Saturday, and if we bowl our miniature, everywhere. Yeah, get them involved in your family's life. Teach them. Let them be a part. The reason this matters so much is because this resolution alone creates buy-in. Mm. When they have some sort of hands-in, whether it's in the work or the play, they now have a buy-in where they're much more invested in your family. They care more. Yeah. And so we want to do that. A really great way to start that's so fun and simple. Sit down as a family. Write down every single thing that has to be done. And that's the good and bad. Not just we have to make our beds or pack lunches, but we have to play on Saturdays from 2 to 4. And start filling in who's going to be responsible for all of those things. Who's going to be responsible for your bed? Well, you are. Well, who's going to take Saturday? we got to hang out as a family and have some fun. What's that look like? Well, I want that one. Let's take that. That's great. Yeah. And so they can start to see also that life isn't only about do this, do that. That's miserable. Fun, fun, fun. And not even misery, misery, misery. But it's all about. Planning, working, all the other, all the things behind the scenes that they never see. Right. It's all about contributing to this team. And yeah. look what happens. When we work together as a team, we're happy together as this team. We, we function together much better. And so the resolution really is that. Let's get kids involved. This idea that they get to just sit around and do nothing while we do everything and then we're going to resent them for it. Yeah. But we never spoke up to create a different atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's no good anymore. It's, well, and it, it's so disabling to the child because eventually they're going to get to college and who's going to plan their schedule? Well, it's exactly right. And while they're in college, we're going to sit at home still resenting the fact that now you get to go to college. Yeah. And the only reason you See? got there is because I did this. Right. See, See, I told you so. <laughs> I told you not to worry because I take care of all of it. <laughs> Either way, so we're trapped. True. So, so we're going to focus on that. Yeah. Give us one that. more, one more uh, little uh, one trick. One more. Okay, so. New Year's resolutions. Let's, uh, let's resolve to make mornings and bedtime more magical. Putting kids to bed and getting them up is going to happen every single day for at least 18 to 20 years. Yeah, it's not. Not necessarily the putting to bed, waking up, meaning like we're going to have to brush their teeth and read them stories, that type of thing. But there is magic that can happen if we will be more mindful about what morning routine and bedtime routines look like. Right. Right. And so instead of it being a frustrated, hurried, stressful situation – We really need to resolve as fast as we can yesterday to be in a position where mornings and bedtime, those routine situations, have magic behind them. And that doesn't mean we need, you know, fairies and cupcakes and, you know, that's not what we're talking about. We are talking about patience. We are talking about preparation. We're talking about recognizing simply that if I'm going to yell at my child for being too slow getting their shoes on 
and then they get out of the car to start a seven-hour day at school, they're probably not feeling too fantastic. Yeah, that's right. And if I'm rushing them into bed and too frustrated because I have other things to do, and when I say goodnight and they say, hey, mom, and I go, no, not tonight. I'll talk to you about it in the morning. That's the last thing they remember when they close their eyes to try and go to sleep. And so whether we like it or not, there's always space to create a better solution, resolution, a solution to what those routines look like. Such good advice. And really, for the most important part of our life, right? Those those handoffs. Absolutely. And it's tricky because, and this is where shooting straight sometimes hurts, but a lot of those times, it's out of laziness or selfishness that we create uncomfortable routines, yeah. right? It's, I don't want to listen to your story one more time. Yeah. I, I don't want I've to give you it. a drink yeah. of water, right? Yeah. Or just simply, you know, yeah, I'd love to, but I'm too tired or I'm too this. There's got to be a place where we go, wait a second, again, this is a little person. I just put them in a crib. They can't even get out. Right. They know six words. One happens to be drink. And either they really are thirsty or they actually just need a little more of my time. Attention. They need a little more attachment. They mm-hmm. need a few more strings, like you said, connected to them. So cool. And so it's an internal you know, evaluation where we have to look at ourselves and decide, you know, where or the question really is what type of relationship mm-hmm. or what's the best thing I can do for this relationship with our kids. So good. Routines morning and night help, oh, dramatically. Heather Ann Johnson's her name, and you're going to want to go to her website to pick up more information. Familyvolley.com is the name of her website uh, because she plays tennis. Tennis. As a family. Best sport. By far. far. Uh, (laughs) Familyvolley.com, and uh, you can find out more in her book, Family Fun Fridays, and soon to be releasing Family Fun Saturdays through Thursdays. Uh, Good stuff, Heather. Thanks again for being with us. And of course. Continue the journey, folks. Straight ahead, we'll hear from our good brethren at BYU Sports Nation. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends. It is that time of uh, the show when we go to our good brethren, down at BYU Sports Nation so that they can uh, line up for us what's going to be on their show today. Of course, it's Spencer and Jerem. Hello, gentlemen. Hello, Matthew. How are you both? Oh, we are fantastic. (laughs) Hey, I got great news for you. What's up? Now, Jerem, isn't it, didn't, were you from Oregon? I grew up in uh, the great Northwest and then moved to Utah when I was 11. Okay, so you now have some splaining to do. Uh Yeah. Uh Uh-oh. Talk. Uh, there is some great news, uh, but I wanted to hear your take on this. Um, as of January 1st, Oregon has changed some laws that now allows people in rural counties with less than 40,000 people to pump their own gasoline. Yes. Between yes. 6 p.m. and 6 a.m. Yes. Now, to me, that seems very, very dangerous. <laughs> it seems like this could be we will now hear of fuel fires all over rural uh, Oregon. It is certainly a change. Why do people need to pump your gas in Oregon? That's a good question for those who have lived in Oregon sooner than 1995. (laughs) You don't even remember. (laughs) It's been 22 years since I lived in Oregon. Yeah. Do you think, and Spence, chime in, do you think this is going to be as dangerous as it sounds? Uh, I'm worried about people that have never pumped gas before. (laughs) 
you know, that, that's a very <laughs> really natural worry. You well, should... I, no, I'm serious. Like, I saw some of the social media commentary from people that were complaining on different uh, websites and uh, editorial sections on online newspapers. The, the people that are 55-plus that have never pumped gas in Oregon, I, I'm worried about. Well, you, you don't want somebody that's really shaky, you know, trying to pump gas. By the, the way, last this, thing we that's, need that's is some we... static electricity getting out of the car, yeah. not knowing what's going right. on. Joking around. Joking around. Lighten the what, place up. What is this, Zoolander? <laughs> <laughs> totally. By the way, uh, this law came into effect in 1951 to protect 10,000 jobs. But now people just kind of laugh about it. Okay, so let me ask you this. More afraid of uh, people pa- uh, passing, not passing gas, pumping gas um, in uh, rural uh, Oregon. Are you more afraid of that or are you more afraid of Arby's new meat sweats, which are uh, – it's, it's sweat clothes. Uh... It's, it's sweats that are covered with the pattern of their Arby's sliced meat, which is more scary. No one's life is in danger. Have you seen these pants, these sweats, though? <laughs> they're meaty and they're sweaty. They almost look like camo, but to me, they just, and there's even bacon. There's like some bacon around the knee area. Game changer. Yeah. yeah. I received for Christmas an item that, like this bacon oven of sorts. What? Wow. Like, a, a, a sort of bacon oven thing. It hadn't arrived, and it still hasn't arrived. Maybe Shout it doesn't exist. My brother-in-law, Dan Barnes, uh, I need that <laughs> gift still. Uh, that was the best thing I got for Christmas. A bacon oven. Of it's... sorts. Like, well, I, I think it's a thing you put in, the microwave. in your oven. Yeah. And it, it, and it will cook the bacon, and, like, all the grease goes into it. Like, yes. So, like, easy, and then you just you just pick it off and eat it. Yeah. And Easier then you... than another set of uh-huh. like, It's one of those. In fact, I saw it on an infomercial. And sent it to him and said, whatever you got me for Christmas, throw it away. <laughs> Give me this, please. And he did it. And he did it. Because he cares. He cares well, he that much. he kind of did it. I don't have it yet. Yeah. He didn't get it. He sent it to it, himself. he didn't give it to me. Yeah. But right. he printed out a piece of paper. Saying that you're going to get the bacon. Yes. yes. Yeah, it's not happening. Just so you know. Not happening. I mean, I'm old enough, guys. I've seen every trick in the book. In fact, I invented two of them. And you're not anyway. getting anything, not to be rude. Oh. What, what's right. your favorite gift this Christmas season, Spence? Ooh, I brought in a fantastic white elephant gift uh, yesterday. What? It's, it's a Napoleon Dynamite Vinyl Idols doll. Oh, beautiful. It's pretty cool. That is beautiful. Like, I'm trying to think of a reason to put it on the desk in Studio B for our show, but I can't think of one. Well, why do you need a reason? <laughs> well, just because... Just give me everything. Typically, everything in here has a connection to BYU sports or to something that we've done or a place we've been. Like, Yeah, that, but just say... Just a white elephant gift. But just say it's it was you in high school. <laughs> put a little Y on your sweater. Spin Mac. Gosh. <laughs> Spencer's nickname in high school is Spin Mac. Truth, Spin Mac? Tell him why, Spencer. I received that nickname when I was in seventh grade from my friend Tyson Donaldson. Tyson! Because apparently I had so many girlfriends, different girlfriends through junior high, that I became Spen Mac Daddy. Oh, Spen Mac Daddy. <laughs> Worth it. Totally. And it stuck through high school, so it just became Holy Spen Mac. Holy cow. I even had a fake phone number, 1-800-SPEN-MAC. <laughs> I am going to start gonna calling call you Spen Mac. 
I wonder what it is. I wonder what it is. It works out. There are seven digits in Spenmac. Spenmac. Spenmac Daddy. And you love tater tots. So that's how come this whole Napoleon Dynamite thing comes together. Hey, (gasps) on your show, (laughs) way to to breathe that out through your mouth. Um, what's, What's coming up on your show? You're still um, doing it, right? You answer because I'm calling 1-800-SPEND. Jerem's calling 1-800-SPEND. Be careful. For real. Yeah, be careful. I'm on the phone it. right now. <laughs> I wonder what it is. Taking I orders. It's safe. <laughs> um, today on the show, we have taken the liberty of kind of categorizing the West Coast Conference basketball into two different... Uh, I'm up right now. <laughs> I'm so distracted by Jerem's phone call. You want to know. We have categorized the West Coast Conference into two major categories. St. Oh, Zaga. A travel company. Nice. Oh, boring. St. Zaga. Leave a message. And non-St. Zaga. Oh, yeah. Pretty self-explanatory. Yeah. St. Mary's and Gonzaga make up St. Zaga. St. Zaga. Everybody else in the West Coast Conference makes up non-St. Zaga. Hold on, I'm leaving a message. So one column is a win and one column is a hey, loss? This is, uh, he's, he's literally leaving a message. I, I just think this is a great uh, phone number, 1-800-SPEND-MAC. I just want to applaud you guys for that. BYU Sports day. Nation. He actually left a message. That's great. <laughs> this travel company is going to get it and be like, what in the world? <laughs> See, that is, is great. So, by the way, crazy man, Spen Mac Daddy is now going to be your official name that I will that I will um, call you on my. Hey, show. I'm cool with that. Spen Mac Daddy, and then we'll have to come on one. Still up. got it. We got to get one for Jerome now. Hey, I got to let you guys go. I know you got to get your makeup on, your body art, all that stuff. Uh, get shaved, shined, and uh, your push ups. They are straight ahead, folks. About four minutes from now, you can enjoy for one straight hour the the gentle voices. Of Spen Mac Daddy and Jerome, the duel, the the the, the dueling studs. That's what we'll call them, dueling studs. Hey, um, as you know, on the show, we always like to take a little time to focus on a hero of the day. Today, we have two uh, two heroes, New England cable technicians, that were hailed for heroics, uh, life saving. Um, efforts of a, ch- a toddler in the frigid weather. Two utility workers, Michael Payne and Sean Bronson, they grew up together in Massachusetts. They're now heroes after guiding to warmth and uh, a diaper-clad two-year-old girl who managed to wander into car traffic during the bitter cold weather. This poor girl, I think, was around uh, it was around three degrees. They said, or so, on the thermometer. She had nothing on but a diaper, and they were sitting in their Comcast cable truck driving around town, and they both look over, and when they look over about 2.30 in the afternoon, they can't believe what they see. They look at each other. We both looked at each other and said, is, is that, can, can you believe that? And then they just acted. Bronson said he jumped out of the Comcast truck to warn other drivers, zooming along the heavily trafficked Route 32. As Payne scooped up the girl, apparently wounded uh, with a wounded leg, and she ran, uh, she ran right into the state highway, Bronson said. She was in the middle of the road when she had fallen. And they picked her up, took off all of their, uh, their coats and their sweaters, all their warm stuff, and bundled her up and uh, made sure they could make her as warm as possible. Eventually they called the uh, police, and the police came and said, boy, if it hadn't been for those two, it wouldn't have turned out uh, so good for this be- uh, beautiful little girl. So they are the heroes of the day, Michael Payne, Sean Bronson. Thanks for being there, and thanks for being willing to uh, to do what you had to do. That's what makes a hero, folks. And that is the show. We'll be back again tomorrow. More ideas, more information right here to help you live longer, love stronger, and lead a healthier, happier life. BYU Sports Nation is up next.